Listen to The Astonishing Junk Drawer exclusively at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends. Times and dates are Scott's kryptonite. He was really fascinated with how sideways that got. By the way, I'm going to publicly shame you. Scores of persons in the streets dropped unconscious and several of them died. The Wait. Bet Sphere. Oh, the Bet Sphere. Yes, of course. Do you need to change your perspective? I don't think you're supposed to remember past lives. Also, mm. check for notes or an autograph. Sometimes there's one and they do. Oh, yeah. And when her grandmother died, she and her sister fought viciously over this ring. And nobody other than you folks will ever see it again. They're cosmic jokers after me. Astonishing Legends would like to thank Wondrium, Mint Mobile, our contributors at Patreon.com, and you, our listeners, for making tonight's show possible. Scott and I grew up with radio. In fact, we're old enough to have some memories of even listening to AM radio. Some of you probably don't even know what that is. But guess what? It's still out there. KNX 1070 in Los Angeles, 1010 Winds in New York City. Scott tells me he used to fall asleep listening to 1010 Winds back in the day. But now, more recent generations are probably spending more of their time on Spotify and other online streaming methods to consume audio content. But for 90 years, FM radio was king of the hill in the United States. While across the world and internationally, folks also listen to something known as shortwave radio. You'll learn all about that tonight, but for now, let's just say that hundreds of millions of people own shortwave receivers at the height of their popularity. Some of those people would sometimes hear bizarre sounds coming across the airwaves. Sounds like the ones you just heard moments ago. No one knew what they were or where they were coming from. No organization, company, or government would even acknowledge their existence, but they were out there. Out there for anyone who wants to listen. Most of the time, they broadcast strange human but almost robotic sounding voices spewing sequences of numbers. This would be interspersed with strange tones or odd low fidelity music that sounded like the ice cream truck from Twisted Metal. Some of you will get that reference, but for those that don't, tonight we're going way down the rabbit hole on number stations, and by the time we get done, well, as it is with most topics, there will be very little you don't know about what they are. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. All warfare is based on deception. There is no place where espionage is not used. Offer the enemy bait to lure him. Sun Tzu. Join us tonight when we tune in to Number Stations. And we're back.
That we are, folks, and it's great to be back. But where mm. are we? You may never know. Just a couple of very quick programming notes tonight. Firstly, we want to say happy birthday to one of our good friends, Kat Shreenan. Kat, Yay. thank you so much for all your support over the years, and we hope you're having a great birthday weekend. Yes, happy birthday, Kat. Folks, tonight we invited some of our friends, meaning fellow podcasters, to share some promos of their shows with us, and more importantly, with you. That we did. So pay close attention during the commercial breaks because if you're looking for other shows to listen to, there are some great suggestions coming your way tonight from folks that we 1,000% stand behind as some of the best podcasters in the business, uh, particularly in our genre and genre adjacent. That is right. And there's a lot of crossover between these shows, but some people haven't heard of them. And we just want to make you aware because we see that question still come up even in our own group. It's like, hey, uh, I just finished all of... Astonishing Legends, what else like that, or even much better and more fun, is there out there, and, and people are giving suggestions. <laughs> so that's going to be a fun surprise, and you can't go wrong. Yes, indeed. Well, we'd also like to remind everyone to check out the Midnight Library, now closing in on 3 million downloads Ooh. since it was launched. Mm -hmm. It is a great show, very different flavor from Astonishing Legends, and extremely informative. If you haven't checked it out yet, now is the time to subscribe and catch up. Okay, folks, so let's get started here with Numbers Stations. Wow, man. I think uh, people have been asking us to cover this almost since we started the show. Yeah, it is one of those topics that seems very mysterious, but only if you're not in on it. Because here's what I realized in doing a lot of reading and research, as we uh, usually do, is that if you are the sender or the receiver on this, it's an inside joke of sorts. Yeah. It's not a mystery. And as uh, we'll see a little bit later, I believe it was one of the ministers, I think it was Trade and Transport, whoever takes care of radio signals, like the FCC here, right? Right. This shouldn't mystify the public. It's not meant for you. <laughs> so, right. But when you hear them, it's very mysterious and weird and creepy. Instead of being an inside joke, these are actions and directives and missions and orders to intelligence officers overseas for pretty much every country that engages in that, which affects people's lives. You just don't know it. Right. So it's very serious business on their end. But when the general public hears it, and that's radio and ham and shortwave enthusiasts, when they hear it, it's something that is creepy and cool that you're you're getting to hear something very secret. You just can't make sense of it. I think it's the most intriguing thing about it, really. It's out there for everyone. Anybody right. who wants to can listen to it. You know, it's like that old trope we talk about, about the uh, indigenous people in North America not seeing the ships because they didn't right. recognize. We've And we've gone over this 50,000 times. I'm I, sure you're I, about again, to do it again. You're going to make it 50,001. I'm going to say, uh, I think it's Captain Cook's doctor who right. wrote that in his journal as yeah. they were sailing around. And he just thought it was very unusual. But I just thought, like, it's not just some... <laughs> Some swabby on the deck. No. It's actually a doctor. People tend to give more credence to uh, people in authority, scientists. And here you go. You got a doctor. The point is that you don't know what you're looking at because it's a code. Right. And it's an indecipherable code. And although it is human in origin, it may as well be an alien language. It may as well be an alien uh. stepping off of a ship and saying... Bleep, blop, blorp, because that's going to make as much sense <laughs> right. to you as this code is. And there's nothing stopping you from listening to it. You can All you got to do is right. get a shortwave radio. You can go check it out. But you're not going to understand it any better than you would if they had come here from another dimension and tried to give right. you a message. It's funny that you bleep and blorp, sir, because that's one of the interesting things about this phenomenon, we could say. To us, it's a phenomenon because we don't know anything about it uh, from this end. 
we do suspect its true purpose, but from our end, it sounds really weird. And it's not just people or a voice counting. It can right. be strange sounds, or yes. as we'll learn in a little bit, they have been given fun nicknames depending on the type of sound. Some are buzzers, gongs, beeps, bips, blips, or whatever. It's a bunch of different types of formatting for essentially the same purpose. And that adds to the mystery and the allure to it. And there's something that a gentleman that we're going to talk about a little bit tonight, one of the people that's really journaled this and really gets kudos, I think, for making a huge effort in chronicling all this, Akin Fernandez, or Akin Fernandez, yes. I think it's Akin. What he says is that, you know, once you start listening to a lot of this, you get hooked. There's something about it, just yeah. the creepy coolness of it. And you're drawn in and you just wonder what it is. And that goes for a lot of the paranormal, I think, is that you dip a toe in, next thing you know, you're, you deep dove on it. Yeah, that's right. So we're going to talk about some of these unique sounds. And once you hear more of the clips that we're going to play, I think you'll agree that there's something to the mysterious nature of it that is enticing and a little bit spooky and, and maybe even a little creepy. You know, the first thing I thought was like, what if we could get file 10 and then broadcast it out on a shortwave? <laughs> uh, you can do that. It's just uh, some people are going to just think it's static. Uh, I will tell you in that regard, we did have shortwave ham radio experts. We've talked That's about right. this before. We played it yeah. for them. These guys have had 30, 40 50 Decades. years of yeah. experience, yeah, listening to this, and they'd never heard anything like that. Yeah. Now, that does remind me, and I will bring this up again because it was just quickly mentioned in that series. One of the guys said, uh, sometimes they do get weird broadcast signals that they don't know where it's where coming, coming from, from. what That's it right. is. They said right there in Burbank when we saw them, there was one yes, that exactly. used to be up the street or something, and it had gone away, but it was not yeah. too far away. So that's my point with this is that it was a weird electronic maybe rhythmic sound that they were picking up on their ham radios and, and shortwave and they could zero in on the frequency, but it was something that they'd heard of before. It was slightly, you could say it's a bit unique in that each time that happens, that weird kind of interference happens, they know it's unusual. It's not a mundane source, but something's making that sound. And they would say, yeah, that's more terrestrial. But when they heard File 10, it's like, yeah, that is nothing we've, it's nothing like we've ever heard before. That is something yeah, uh, right. not of this world. And that was, you know, that was their direct assessment, these guys. And we didn't ask them to steer any one way or the other that we just said, what do you think the sound is? Yeah. There you go. Well, actually, one of them said the word demon. Well, now let's talk about <laughs> number stations. So okay. let's start with what a number station is. What is a number station? Well, some of you probably heard of them. Some of you probably haven't. But after the cold open, you know a little bit about what they sound like. They are what can only be described as bizarre broadcasts, primarily on shortwave radio. And sometimes they were present on AM radio too. Now, mm -hmm. people have wondered for decades what they could possibly mean, as they are usually just strange, almost robotic voices spewing out sequences of numbers that didn't make any sense to anyone. But the truth is, they did make sense to someone, the one or small handful of people that they were meant for. And before we get into who they were meant for, let's talk a little bit about how these transmissions get sent out into the world. Now, like we said, there were some that were on AM at some points, but we're going to focus on shortwave radio tonight. So firstly, what is shortwave? Now, you probably either know exactly what it is or you never heard of it. So let's just talk about radio waves in general. I promise I'm going to keep this brief. We're not mm. going to get too far down the rabbit hole here on radio waves, but we all know what radio is, but do we know what radio waves are? They are a form of the electromagnetic spectrum, and they are defined 
by their wavelengths. Now, the important thing about radio waves that is cool is that in a vacuum, they actually travel at the speed of light, and they travel pretty close to that, even through the atmosphere here on Earth. Yeah. The thing about radio waves is they have to be transmitted by humans over an antenna to another antenna, which receives the signal and then uh, pulls it down to a radio receiver for a processing so we can hear it or understand it or decode it. Mm-hmm. The length of a radio wave is what dictates the method of how it travels across the Earth or even off the Earth. So, And, and these, these are super cool because radio waves are impervious to buildings, weather, mountains, and other obstructions, at least the type we're talking about. Now, right. when the frequency of a radio wave is low, it can pass through a building easily. Those waves have to be at 30 megahertz or above. Mm-hmm. Now, microwaves can be focused to travel literally billions of miles through space. Higher frequency radio waves can only travel to the visual horizon, or about 40 miles. Oh, before we get any further, you tell yeah. me, since you've been reading more about this section here, it's a little tidbit I learned from uh, my film school days. So you have AM and FM, right? Yes. Which the public know, we all know that. We, you and I, sir, we did have FM, but the music was slightly different. AM was very poppy. FM radio, that's the one I would like, uh, put the uh, the one mono earbud in yep. late at night yep. and uh, before, you know, to nod off to, I would listen to the album stations and they would play yes. a whole- AOR, album-oriented rock. The whole side of Led Zeppelin Four. Yeah, you can't beat that. It was a whole thing. That's what I'm telling you. Yeah. But AM is amplitude modulation. Yes. I believe. It's just off the top of my head. FM is frequency modulation. And right. what I know is that uh, AM can travel long distances and carry a lot of power, but it's more line of sight. Yeah, and it can be blocked. Yeah. If you go in a tunnel or something exactly. or under a bridge, you can lose an AM signal. But a frequency right. signal, you'll you'll get generally, even inside, wherever you are. Yes, exactly. And I bring this up because, as uh, Marshall McLuhan once said, the medium is the message. And here, in this case, the types of radio waves that are going to be experimented with at the onset make a big difference in what was ended up being used and used today still and the different types of uh, capabilities. Because a lot of people have heard of shortwave, but I'm sure a lot of people may not have heard of long wave. That's There's right. There's all kinds of waves in there. There's also medium waves. Right. There are low frequency waves, to your point, that are at mm-hmm. two megahertz and below. They're getting down into the kilohertz range. And right. these follow the contour of the Earth. They can travel pretty far beyond the horizon this way. They conform to the surface of the planet. They can go for hundreds of miles. If you think about uh, VLF, or you've ever heard of VLF, that stands mm-hmm. for Very Low Frequency Waves. This used to be the main way that the military communicated with submarines, even tens of meters underwater. Interestingly, though, the bandwidth is super narrow, so you can't send voice communication this way. Only slow data. The thing that I think about with this is, you know, I'm a big fan of submarine movies, submarine stuff or whatever. And in uh, Crimson Tide, Gene Hackman, Denzel Mm -hmm. Washington, they have the submarine. They have uh, almost a mutiny thing there. They're trying to decide whether or not to blow up the world. And one of the things they have Mm. to do is go up and get the VLF traffic. They go up to check the VLF signal to confirm mm-hmm. whether or not they should fire a nuclear missile. And there's like a red light on the sub, and it says VLF, and I don't know what that meant, but it's very low frequency. And they would have right. to go up to a certain depth to receive that signal. And of course, I'm getting that mixed up with the EAM, which was the emergency action message. But I think that still <laughs> came through on the VLF. 
So it's like right. so they had to like float an antenna to get it or whatever, but they can still get these signals underwater. And that would be the way that they can get a message, like our super important message, even though they're thousands of miles away from their uh, whoever's sending the message. Right. Well, not to jump ahead, but I think there's also ULF, right? There's a uh, yes. ultra low frequency. Well, same thing. Remember the, in the old TVs, the knob, if you are old enough to remember. That's the UHF, knob. ultra high frequency. Exactly. Yes. V, there is VLF, UHF. And nobody really went there, right? right. <laughs> it was like, right. what are all these high number channels are? Nobody was really, at least in my neighborhood, nobody was really broadcasting that. But I was going to say about submarines, one aspect that's kind of cool, which I start to, uh, I consider extreme physics, is that you can have an antenna that's buried underground that's a mile long or more. Right. And that's what you need to communicate with some of these subs. That is pretty cool and a, and a lot of effort. Yeah. I thought I had read in the past year or two for some other episode we were doing that that system had been retired and replaced by a superior system. But some of the stuff that I looked up for the course of this episode would indicate that maybe it was still in service or there's a backup version. Maybe it's a backup system, but some of those transmitters mm -hmm. weren't being operated anymore. But moving on to what you were saying, there's also the ELF or ELF, right. <laughs> extremely low frequency and mm -hmm. this can be received almost anywhere on the planet. There was once a station in Antarctica that picked up a Soviet naval signal that was ELF when that signal came online all the way up in the Soviet Union. Those transmitters, though, they are super complex to build. So only the U.S., China, Russia, and India have them right now. And China apparently yeah. just finished one that is the size of New York City. So they have this system mm. so they can talk to submarines anywhere on the planet without them having to surface. And in this case, they can be hundreds of meters deep as opposed to tens of meters with the VLF. With the ELF, they can be hundreds of meters down and they can still get a signal, which is pretty crazy. There yeah. are other systems in place now for the US like satellite communication, but that gives you an idea of what those low frequently waves can do. But with the satellite communication, I think they still have to send an antenna to the surface or near the surface to get the signal up to the satellite. And I think that might mm, be what's mm -hmm. replacing the VLF, ELF stuff. And I know we have submariners that listen because we hear from them sometimes, but it's a silent service, so you guys can't really say anything about what I'm saying. I just have to be dumb and wrong about it. And you can't correct me because you're sworn to secrecy. Oh, dear. Yeah. <laughs> but um, It's rough duty, but uh, they have a lot of cool tech at their disposal because of the nature of, yeah. of where they are, where they serve. Yeah. So where does shortwave come in? Well, shortwave radio falls in the generally accepted range of 3 to 30 megahertz, and shortwave has a superpower. It can bounce around in the Earth's atmosphere and be picked up far beyond the horizon from the transmitter. This is called skywave or skip propagation. Atmospheric skip, actually, is another thing you call it. So we talked about this with Amelia Earhart. Folks may remember us mentioning a 15-year-old girl in St. Petersburg, Florida, Betty Klink, I think it was, who picked up transmissions yeah. that she later believed to be Amelia Earhart after her plane had crashed. And she was in Florida. Now, this entire conversation was documented in a notebook, and to this day, many people think she was really hearing Amelia's last transmission. That would have been at a distance of roughly 9,000 miles away, or a third of the way around the planet. And she actually heard a female voice saying things like, water's knee-deep, and send us help. Amelia, at that time, was broadcasting between 3.1 and 6 megahertz during her flight, depending on the time of day. She would alternate between night and day on those ranges, 
And Betty's, yeah, time of day makes a difference. Yeah, it does make a difference, especially as to how effective the skip is. Uh, how much is it going to bounce through the ionosphere? There's different factors that you can take advantage of to get your signal further. And Betty's dad was a radio enthusiast, and he had set up some kind of amateur antenna that he strung all the way across their backyard. So it made sense that they might have actually received that. But other folks were like, oh, she's making it up. She's a kid or whatever. I've always thought that what Betty was hearing was real. And uh, there is, uh, we can give you a link to that uh, journal if you want to look at it. It's pretty fascinating. That's over at the TIGAR website, uh, T-I-H-G-A-R. We'll put a link up to it. So uh, shortwave was put to great use in World War II to transmit propaganda to international audiences. But its mm-hmm. true period of domination was during the Cold War or more specifically between 1960 and 1980. Now, when digital options came along, shortwave was no longer needed as much, but there are still broadcasts happening to this day, but nothing like they were back then. Yeah, but listen to this. A lot of people, you will know the significance and relevance now, is that with shortwave, yeah, it seems antiquated, but guess what? It's hard to throttle in that Exactly. A government can turn off internet. They can restrict your access because it's all being routed through the same channels, but right. if you can obtain a just a pocket-sized shortwave receiver, and they're not that expensive, and sometimes in the most restrictive countries and settings, sure, uh, you may not have one in North Korea for any reason, or get shot for having right. one. But in most of your Eastern Bloc countries where there is repression, you can have a radio, and it's not such a big deal because reception is poor anyway. So it's not such a, a hard thing to get. And if you get that, then you can get news from outside the dome, the iron dome right. that comes down that tries to throttle your info of the truth of what's really happening out there. So that's what I'm saying. It's that you might think it's antiquated, but in the same sense, it's a little bit pirate. It's a little bit cool. That's right. And there are pirate broadcasts sent out on shortwave, and, and those are still happening too. Now, in peacetime, you don't get a lot of shortwave transmissions happening on, but there's actually been a significant uptick in its use in the conflict or the war between Russia mm-hmm. and Ukraine because one lasting power that it has is, as Forrest just said, it's extremely difficult to censor, especially in a war zone. And again, like Forrest said, with the internet, you can have a foreign country can have complete control of the internet. You can hack into networks, you can shut down pipelines, but you can't use a digital method to hack an analog signal, really. Your only chance at thwarting a shortwave broadcast is either to take it out at the source, which is tricky since Mm -hmm. they can broadcast thousands of miles from a safe, you know, thousands of miles away from a safe location, or you can jam it near where it's being received if you don't want people on the ground to hear it. But that requires highly technical, skilled technicians who know where the signal might be being received, going around, figuring out where it is, and just jamming Fred over there who's trying to pick it up on his uh, radio, (laughs) which is essentially, Mm -hmm. that's a needle in a haystack. But sometimes you don't have to hide when you're broadcasting propaganda or sending a signal like this. Like if you're the BBC, right now, the BBC is using shortwave to broadcast news to Russian citizens because Russia may be able to block the internet, but they can't block a shortwave broadcast. And it must be working because Russian visitors to the BBC website are up over 250% as of this past March. And the BBC is now broadcasting on two frequencies, which according to RadioWorld.com in an article posted by James Careless on March 6th, and uh, thanks to uh, Gletters from Anomaly Podcast Mm -hmm. for sharing this article with us, these channels that the BBC is broadcasting on can be clearly received in Kyiv as well as parts of Russia. Uh, those frequencies, for people listening who might want to track those down, are 15735 kilohertz. That's 15735 kilohertz between 1400 and 1600 UTC time. 
and 5875 kilohertz from uh, 2000 to 2200 UTC time. Kiev is two hours ahead of UTC. So if anybody mm -hmm. is trying to get a hold of those broadcasts. But what else is shortwave good for? Well, it's good for air traffic control, for airplanes that are way out over the ocean. It's good for what they call utility stations that send signals, again, to remote maritime operations like the merchant marines or captains who are far out at sea and need weather reports. It's good mm -hmm. for ham radio operators or amateur radio operators. Uh, it's also good for time signal stations. Yeah. I've told this story before. My dad made a clock that was basically a, a shortwave radio receiver. I was always really impressed with him as a kid, but he made this yeah. thing and then you could have a little red LED, you know, uh, diode readout and you could, uh, mostly though, we, I mean, we listen to some foreign broadcasts, which is kind of cool. Right. And some people having a chat or as they, uh, as they say, between ham operators, a uh, rag chew. That's right. like chewing the fat. Yeah, right. they would have a rag chew, which is an informal discussion, just having fun, talking about what's it like where you're at? Uh, what's it like where you're at? Yeah. But we yes. would listen to the um, the time signal, the recording that would come out of Boulder, Colorado. Like, yeah, Fort Collins, more specifically, yeah. yes. Yeah. yeah, it was kind of cool. So that's why I'm saying the appeal. I know it's nerdy and, and weird, but there is something kind of cool about that. It's coming from a long ways away and near the speed of light. And it was the correct time. I didn't include a long section on that here when we were doing research for this because that one's actually technically not shortwave. It's going closer to very low frequency, like we were talking about with the submarines. Ah, right, and I right. have a Casio, a G-Shock. I have one of the newer ones that has hand, it has actual hands on it, but it's atomic, mm -hmm. and it gets that signal from Fort Collins. So I never wow. have to set it, and it's always right to the second. It checks itself once or twice a day. It checks in with the atomic signal from uh, Fort Collins, which is a very low frequency or low frequency signal that the watch picks up somehow, which is pretty cool. Very cool. I'm Dean. I'm the dad. I'm Laura. I'm the mom. And I'm Brooklyn. I'm the daughter. And together we are the Family Plot Podcast. And when we're not doing PG-13 takes on true crime, folklore, history and the paranormal, we're listening to Astonishing Legends. Now back to the show. There's other reasons that shortwave is such a great option for number stations. The receivers are, as Forrest said, they're easily accessible. They're cheap. You can even build one MacGyver style, which is, of course, perfect for spies. But even if you don't have chewing gum and a rubber band like MacGyver, <laughs> in most foreign countries, you can just buy a shortwave radio cheap. And in mm. fact, a lot of people have them. They are now small, portable, battery-operated. Some even work on solar power. I was looking at some today because I was like, you know what? I yeah. need a new one. And I was looking online. I saw one on Amazon, one of the really nice ones that had all the mm -hmm. bells mm -hmm. and whistles. But it had a solar setup. Like, it came with a solar setup so you could sit outside. And it was prepper-oriented, you know. Well, that's what I was going to say. That's great, as you mentioned. And also, uh, we, were, we were talking to uh, our good friend Gled. In an emergency, it's a great way to get news and weather yeah. Especially weather alerts. And there are dedicated weather alert stations. You'll see radios like that that are more emergency minded that are, yeah, are pretty I have that. I have one of those ones with a hand crank for hurricanes. Exactly. I had it for earthquakes in yeah. LA. Now I have it here for hurricanes, you know, pick your for natural disaster. But you can hand crank <laughs> mm -hmm. it and it'll work for five or ten minutes after you've just spun the hand generator around a little bit. So Yeah, cool. yeah. The reality is there is no better low cost analog, long-range, hard-to-sensor, impervious to weather and structures way to get a radio signal thousands of miles between two parties. 
Now, there are new methods, in fact, uh, for getting information across, even in the face of a noisy frequency, using something that's now called Olivia MFSK, or Multiple Frequency Shift Keying. And again, this is low bandwidth. You can send 150 characters per minute with Olivia. It was developed in 2003. It's a digital protocol. So in this case, you're combining digital technology with analog transmission and reception. That's beyond the scope of our topic tonight, but it's definitely (laughs) worth Mm -hmm. mentioning because the point is like, now let's say you have a signal or frequency that is so noisy, it's very hard to get through. So you're going to minimize the amount of signal you need to send to get your message across. And I guess using this methodology, you can still get the data through, which is kind of like, I'm speculating here, and I'm sure that some of our radio friends will correct us, including Gled, who is a ham enthusiast himself uh, from the Anomaly Mm -hmm. podcast in the UK. But you know, with um, a lot of times when you have a really bad cell signal, because cell service, people forget this, that's radio. It's essentially radio. It just takes the signal from one tower and hands it off. It's two-way radio. But a lot of times you'll be somewhere where you have a horrible signal. You can't make a phone call. You can't download any web pages. You can't check your email or anything. But you know what still comes through? Text. You're still getting the text Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because it's probably something similar to this idea where it's like, look, this is the bare minimum we have to work with. We have a more sophisticated way to get a simpler message through almost no matter what. So, But there are some disadvantages to it, particularly in urban environments. It is very sensitive to electromagnetic interference from other things like Wi-Fi routers, Mm -hmm. modems, fluorescent lights, computers, any kind of network Wi-Fi equipment or Bluetooth because it's operating in the same realm. And one of the rules in, in the U.S. anyway from the Federal Communications Commission is that things have to accept that interference. There's no choice. You have to, it has to take Mm -hmm. it in because that's how Mm -hmm. they uh, have written the law and the code and the rules to work that way. So uh, you can have more problems with it. It's kind of like a telescope. The more out in the country you are, the better off you are in terms of being able to listen to what you want to hear. Right. Government and espionage agencies can try to jam the signal sometimes or confuse it or overlay it. And then sometimes those number stations can bleed onto a a music channel or it's like the Bulgarian folk dance channel. Uh, Suddenly you're hearing numbers and they, it's like, oh oh boy, that's a problem. They're getting confused. And when it comes to spy instructions and people's lives and dangerous uh, spy espionage maneuvers, you don't want to be off by a direction, right? You don't want to, you don't want to make a mistake like, Oops, I killed the wrong person. Uh, well, so you have to, have, idea, you have, to <laughs> have a very specific uh, narrow receiver that can focus in on a very tiny right. bit because then you don't, and then you won't get that bleed from a neighboring station, which is the same thing with the broadcast. It's broadcasting out, but it's bleeding over uh, the frequencies a little bit, which is when right, you can right. encroach on uh, on a pre existing broadcast. Yeah. But overall, I'd say the uh, the benefits outweigh the uh, disadvantages. Yeah. So it that's why it's uh, it's not as in use today as it was during the height of the Cold War. But as I'm going to go over the brief history of number stations here, just to give us some background and uh, bring us up to speed, as we said with the quote at the beginning of the show, warfare has always involved espionage and deception. That will always give you the upper hand if you can communicate. And when you can't communicate, that can get you into real trouble. So in ancient cryptography, we have a device called the skittily. We've talked about that before, going back to Sir Francis Bacon and and some of those uh, other forms. But here's a very easy thing to do in, in a way, and it's not very sophisticated, but for the ancient world, it may do for quite a long time. And the skittily spelled S-C-Y-T-A-L-E, or sometimes transliterated as a skittily or skittily, comes from the ancient Greek, meaning baton or cylinder. 
And that was a tool that facilitated a transposition cipher. So here's the deal on that. You had a cylinder, think about it as a dowel of some kind, of some thickness. Uh, it could be octagonal, so the numbers came out flat. But then you had a long strip of parchment. Or, I've also read, it could be leather. And you had letters stamped out on it or, or printed out on it horizontally. And what you did was you needed the right diameter of a skittily or a stick, essentially, and you wrapped it around. And once it's wrapped around, then the proper message should line up with the letters correctly. Now, for this trick to work is that the sender has to have their message composed on a the right size cylinder, right, as you compose the message, then you have to transport that strip of paper or leather, or whatever the letters are printed on, to the recipient. And they also have to have the right size diameter receiving skittily. So they have to wrap it around and it has to line up and then they can read the message. Now it's easily cracked in that, uh, of course, you could lose the strip of paper or leather. Somebody could intercept it and it would take a long time, but you <laughs> had a ton of sticks of different diameters. You could just keep wrapping them around and keep going until you got a message that you thought made sense. So you probably right. don't have time for that, especially in battle. But yeah, that was used by the Greeks, uh, the ancient Spartans, I believe the Romans as well. And it's been around for a long time, but again, it's not totally foolproof. But this method is. So there's an example of a very early ancient world form of cryptography. But what about number stations? When was the first instance of number stations being used or heard by anybody? Well, this is a pretty interesting case here. So the first known reported use of uh, number stations and people picking it up was during World War I, because you need radio, right? So it's around right. that time of development. It's being further developed by geniuses like Marconi, and it's broadcast over radio and likely used Morse code to begin with. So who's the first reported person or first known <laughs> radio listener enthusiast to realize that uh, this is something interesting and special, and maybe I should record this. Well, this story comes from numbers-stations.com, and it's just an article. There's a lot of fascinating articles over there if you're interested in this uh, topic here. And they printed that story originally from an Austrian radio program called Kurzwellen Panorama which I think is shortwave panorama. And my apologies again, as always, to uh, native speakers of whatever language I'm mangling. Uh, <laughs> this is an article called Number Stations in World War I, 100 Years of Espionage. Already pretty fascinating. And this actually came out in a newsletter of, uh, I think, one of the first 12 original issues of the Enigma newsletter. And in that article, it states that the earliest known listener was Anton Habsburg. That name ring a bell? The Habsburgs? Yeah. Kind of famous. Yeah. yeah. Famous family. Yeah. <laughs> so, so check this. He, as a young man, started listening in on a few of the enemy stations and wrote down about 30 pages of material every day and would drop them off at the war office. Oh. This young gentleman was born in 1901 in Salzburg, Austria, and was at birth already Archduke Anton of Austria. And I think he probably lost that title, uh, being born in 1901, lost that in 1919 because all titles of nobility and royalty were prohibited and outlawed in Austria. But he was the seventh of 10 children born to Archduke Leopold Salvatore of Austria, Prince of Tuscany, and Infanta Blanca of Spain. So interesting parents, probably. 
And his mom was the daughter of Carlos, Duke of Madrid. So, But after 1919, it was just Leopold, Infanta, and Carlos. <laughs> he was... <laughs> After that, he was uh, Andy or Ant, probably in, in yes. Britain. <laughs> I, and I always think of there was the the Warner Brother. There was one of those Bugs Bunnies uh, with Leopold, the conductor. They were waiting on. Him. They were like Leopold, Leopold. Oh. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> no, that was a great battle uh, with the uh, the alum, and I never knew what that was, but it it, it kind of shrinks your voice. Like, and uh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, just look it up, folks. But this is something <laughs> that all uh, ham radio enthusiasts do. Because there's a little bit of protocol, and and it's a bit nerdy, but it's a lot of fun. They log what they call uh, QSOs, and that's a record of a radio contact. So he made some QSOs. Again, this is more of a formal contact here. Uh, It could be a card. It could be a log sheet. But he made those with the Austrian military station in Vienna. And here's just an explanation from the, just the wiggy explanation here is an amateur radio contact more commonly referred to simply as a contact is an exchange of information between two amateur radio stations. The exchange usually consists of an initial call, a response by another amateur radio operator at an amateur radio station, and then you make a signal report. So it's just a way of contacting like, oh, I, I contacted this person in this country and it's pretty cool. We talked for a bit and here's the time and the signal and all that. And so a contact is often referred to by the Q code, QSO. And sometimes it's just a minimal exchange of like station IDs. And it's a way to, uh, to talk to people. And it's kind of cool. It's like a stamp collection or something where you, you've marked who you've talked to around the globe right. without having them walk a foot. And so ham operators will say uh, when they contact each other that they worked each other. Or you can also say that you worked a certain country, is that you made contact, you talked to some people there. And amateurs will send each other QSL cards with stations and people they've worked. And sometimes those logs can be kept as keepsakes or just proof that uh, you have contacted certain people in different countries and you can have contests to see how many people have talked to uh, the the most amount of people in a certain amount of time and the longest distances, like you've contacted everybody in all 50 states or you were the winner of the DX Century Club. So there you go. That's what a lot of ham operators do. They write the stuff down anyway. You just keep a radio log. So his first activities during World War I is that he started picking up and became really involved with these numbers transmissions. And again, most likely over Morse code. And again, I back in the old days, they made you learn Morse code to get your ham operator's license. I'm not sure that's the case. Glenn could certainly tell you that. But he regularly tuned to the coded messages from the enemy stations. And again, he, he noted about 30 pages each day of their, their, their Morse code secret transmissions over radio. And uh, he had certain designations for them. Uh, one was like FL for Tour Eiffel from Paris, ICI from Cotona, Italy, MSK from Moscow. Now, these stations exchanged coded messages, and he always wrote down the numbers on his way home from school, and then he called the war office to relay these. So then he handed over the messages to the radio operator there saying, quote, I can't use it, not knowing what the key is, but if you can use it, fine. If not, throw it away. So then the Department of uh, Military Chiffron, or military chiefs, consisted of uh, three groups for Russian codes, Romanian codes, and Italian codes. The numbers were always checked, and they were found to be correct. And on one occasion, the antennas on the receiving stations could not operate due to heavy frost. So that's one of the drawbacks we, we said is atmospheric. Right. So right. they could not send or receive messages, but 
they had Habsburg's copies, which they could use. So there you go. He did some good with the war effort. Yeah, there you go. So he may have been the first number station monitor uh, publicly, or at least a civilian that was working with the military and intercepting these messages and relaying those to uh, the Austrian military. So that's about, a you know, 100 years of use so far. And that program that was described stopped running a very long time ago, and it's now impossible to find the original program, I believe, of the German radio program that uh, talks about this. So anyway, that's a pretty interesting notation, because I wondered, like, who was the first person to hear one? And really, when you ask that question, you get an answer, right? <laughs> so... Who was the first person that saw this weird cryptid? Well, you don't know. Uh, right. But here, this is a good case for it being Austrian royalty. Yeah, he lived to 1987. I'm looking at a picture of him now on Wikipedia. He's a very, very cool looking dude. <laughs> rocking, the, rocking the early radio monitoring. Very cool. <laughs> right. So there you go. Was doing it before it was cool. I'm not sure if it was ever really cool, but... Monitoring and recording number stations really gained a lot of popularity with amateur radio operators with shortwave and ham in the 1970s, presumably also coinciding with the height of the Cold War and increased espionage activities. That was kind of the heyday is the 70s, is that there's a lot of spy stuff going on back and forth. And as mentioned in the Conet Project PDF book, and I think Scott's going to talk about that a little bit later, that's that tremendous compilation recording of most of the stations that are out there by Mr. Fernandez. And it's all compiled in this project of his called the CONET, C-O-N-E-T project. And that's just tracking all this stuff. And that's what we're saying. He got really hooked on this stuff and did a remarkable job. It just kind of blows you away of all these secret stations that have been tracked. So with all that, in at least one court case, maybe two, there was some proof of the use of number stations for national government espionage. Because here's the other thing, it's secret, nobody's going to admit to this. So we right. don't really get an official statement of like, yeah, that's what it is. <laughs> You're right, keep listening, if you can figure it out. Write us if you can. None of that's happening. But what came to light was that the intended recipients of the broadcast code used one-time pads to decipher the coded messages and that some number stations have altered their broadcast signature details or their increased or specialized broadcasting activity. And interestingly, that has coincided with some really, uh, let's say, intense political, government, military events that have happened. One of them being the 1991 attempted overthrow of Mikhail Gorbachev, also known as the August Coup. In that case, if you remember, the Soviet communist hardliners, uh, they were angry at losing power over Gorbachev's reform program. And so they had KGB agents seize him at his holiday estate. And Gorbachev uh, at the time was the Soviet president and general secretary of the Communist Party. But the coup leaders failed to arrest Boris Yeltsin. Remember him? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. Well, he was the recently elected president of the newly reconstituted Russian government. So he didn't get all the dudes he needed to. And the point here is that the KGB tried to cut off Gorbachev and his people from developing uh, news stories and communication, which they're doing now. And as that happened, number station activity increased. So some faction was still able to use it even with a coup lockdown. Right. So this is the idea, again, as we're going to say, number station messaging is very hard to curb and can be very effective even in restrictive and chaotic circumstances. The coup failed after only two days, and within four months, the Communist Party 
of the Soviet Union and the USSR fell apart. But what I was going to say, though, is Gorbachev and his people were still able to communicate, and it was by shortwave, they believe. Now, I guess you have a comment about this because we both love uh, spycraft terms. A more yes. official definition of this type of communication used for espionage is found in the book Spycraft by Robert Wallace and H. Keith Melton. It's sometimes called a one-way voice link, or OWVL. Have you ever heard of that? I have not heard of that, actually. It's just a way of saying that uh, the signal goes out and the spy right. isn't really saying back like, hey, got your message to uh, be at this place and start a coup. Oops. In space travel, when they're communicating and they're in a place where they can't receive, they'll mm -hmm. say that they're calling in the blind, I think they call it. We're in the blind. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Blind, yeah. Which means, you know, we're transmitting, but we couldn't receive right now. Yeah. Right. That's the central principle here is that the recipient, the operative in the field doesn't communicate back. They have to do that in some other way uh, as right. to the, uh, the status dying. report. <laughs> <laughs> Leaving a status report. Well, no, sure. you're alive it, if you make the next dead drop. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the thing is that with these communication channels, you can have misinformation bled through them just to see, is this guy a double agent? Right. Is he now intercepting stuff he shouldn't be, or who's he really working for? So Right, right, right. In this case, though, this is why it's simple. Going back to the definition in the book Spycraft, a covert operative can use a regular, unmodified shortwave radio receiving the 3 to 30 megahertz bandwidth at a predetermined time, date, and frequency as specified in their communications plan. Before you send somebody out in the field, it's like, here's your packet, right? This is what right. we're going to do. And that's all coded, too. Yeah, exactly. And uh, right. So they if you get caught with it, here's the thing. The agent would just have to justify possessing a shortwave radio and not really be technically surveilled. Right. But if they're not under suspicion, the CIA considered it very secure and a preferable system of getting messages to their agents during the Cold War. So they thought it worked and it did, especially in Europe. Here, it'd be a little unusual, especially to have a handheld, unless you're just an enthusiast. And uh, when I was a kid, you would see uh, usually older guys, and they would have the camper, right? Yeah. And they would have their ham radio call sign yeah. on stickered letters and a giant antenna on their rig. And yeah. that's how you knew they were, a, <laughs> they were a hammy. So, well, here's a rundown a little bit of some of the more well-known stations that we're going to talk about here in a little bit. And what I'm excited to hear is that we kind of split this up. You're going to talk about ones I, I don't know a lot about. Right. But there are a few that a lot of people have pointed to because they've, uh, let's just say they're the more popular stations and they've gained a lot of attention from the hobbyists. And one of them, of course, uh, probably a lot of people have heard, and we've actually even used a bit of that audio a long time ago for a little fun thing we were having with a little number stations tease. I, I can't remember what episode it was, but we did a birthday shout out. Oh, <laughs> using yeah. numbers. Yeah. That's right. To that person would know, right? Yes, yes, yes. So that is known as station E03. E stands for English. So it's an English speaking station. And that one's known as the Lincolnshire Poacher. But that title comes from the name of a traditional English folk song, likely from the 1700s, in that area there, celebrating the joys of poaching wild game. And just a few bars of that tune are used as an opener or interval signifier before the spoken numbers. So I believe we can play a little bit of it for our audience here. Scott, don't you have a, a link to the audio clip? Uh, yeah, we have a soundbite from this. We, and most of the soundbites, except where otherwise indicated that we have of these uh, channels, 
came from mm-hmm. Simon Mason's now defunct website. Uh, we'll tell you a little bit more about Simon Mason here in a bit. And his website's down, but it's available on the Wayback Machine, and it's just a treasure trove of recordings mm. and sounds from all these stations. Uh, so we'll, we'll have a link to it on the Wayback Machine, which is Internet Archive, where you mm-hmm. can get to these sound bites if you want to. But that's where this came from, to give credit. And I think in a lot of cases he recorded some of them, but in other cases they were sent to him, uh, and then he posted right. them on his website. But we wanted to give uh, as much proper attribution as we can on that. So there you go. That's one of the more famous ones or the more popular ones that people have bandied about. Now, the Lincolnshire Poacher Station is thought to have started sometime in the mid-1960s or early 70s and is believed to be operated or was by the British Secret Intelligence Service or MI6. It's believed also that it first started broadcasting from Bletchley Park, the English country house and estate we've mentioned before as being connected to Alan Turing and the Enigma code-cracking efforts in World War II. Remember that, Scott? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, pretty remarkable place and remarkable what they did, really turning the tide on the war there. But then sometime later, amateur direction finding narrowed the source location of the Lincolnshire Poacher station signal to the Royal Air Force Base Akrotiri on the island country of Cyprus in the Mediterranean Sea. The speculated target region of its broadcast was to agents operating in the Middle East. So that's where people think that uh, that's where it originated. That's who they were uh, aiming towards there. And then the Lincolnshire Poacher stopped broadcasting in about 2008. And it's believed that a sister number station nicknamed Cherry Ripe took over. And that one gets its name also from another folk song that was used as an interval signal. Now, Cherry Ripe is thought to have started its broadcast from the island of Guam, a U.S. territory, but then it moved to broadcasting from Australia in 2009 and ceased broadcasting altogether in December of that year. And they think their target audience there was the Far East operatives of the British Intelligence Service. And they thought that those are the guys that tuned into Cherry Ripe. And then some people think that after the Lincolnshire Poacher stopped recording that Cherry Ripe took over some of their duties uh, for some of their operatives there. So let's hear a little bit of that because uh, you'll hear the similarities and why people think those two are linked up and come from MI6. Thank you. 
So if you noticed here, listeners, other listeners notice similarities between the two stations because they both, one, used a folk song as an interval signal. They both had the same message pattern. A synthesized female voice with a British accent would read groups of five numbers. And then the final number in each group was spoken with a higher pitch. Now, here's a little bit of designation I thought was interesting by listeners, not by the clandestine services themselves, but just by people who track this stuff to give some nomenclature. Yeah. So E on the station number indicates an English broadcasting station. G indicates broadcasting in German. S is in a Slavic language. V indicates all other languages. And then M is a station in Morse code. That still happens. And what's funny, I would imagine that... uh, that's a little less easier these days to crack, like a car thief getting into a car with a stick shift. Yes. <laughs> it's like, unless you know what you're doing, you're stuck there. I so, drove a stick today and it was a lot of fun. Because you're actually working a machine, man. Yes. I'll tell you. But to your point, I don't worry about locking it as much as I used to. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Uh, here's a few other designations that I thought were interesting that, because I'm going to mention them because you're going to talk about the technology a little bit later here. Yes. Uh, one is SK. That's a digital mode of transmission. Oh yeah. HM is a hybrid mode, right? Yes. And then DP, a digital pseudo polytone. That's interesting. So then rounding out the hit parade here, there's some other well-known stations from the 1970s, which was again the heyday. And they include the Russian UVB76 station known as the Buzzer. And again, that's a nickname by shortwave radio station listeners. And that has a monotonous buzz tone sound to it. You want to hear that one? Yeah, let's play it. Okay, pretty interesting. Here's another one. It's presumed Russian, a and a sister station to the buzzer. This one's called the Pip. And then to round out the Russian Troika here, uh, this one's called the Squeaky Wheel, and it was designated by Enigma, that's a group uh, of listeners there, as S32 with S, again, indicating Slavic language. But here's another thing that was interesting from 2000 to 2005, it was designated as XSW when the voice in the station was unknown. So they could not figure out what was the source country or who took that over. Let's play a little bit of that.
Hi, I'm Jim Harold, and I love astonishing legends just like you. And just like me, Scott and Forrest love spooky stories of the strange and supernatural. And if you agree, I hope you'll check out my podcast, Jim Harold's Campfire. Every week on Jim Harold's Campfire, ordinary people share their extraordinary stories of encountering the paranormal. It could be ghosts, UFOs, cryptid creatures, head scratchers, or anything supernatural. The concept is simple. I talk with regular folks about strange stuff that happens to them for 90 minutes every week. Stories like the ghost story involving serial killer Ted Bundy. Or a woman who saw her precise doppelganger twice in one day at her place of work. Or maybe there's the young man who encountered what he called an eight-legged demon. Better him than me. (laughs) But then there was a story of an alien abduction by what may have been a reptilian. Now, I don't want you to get the wrong idea. Not all of the stories are terrifying, just some. But some are heartwarming, a visit from a past loved one, or a peaceful near-death experience, perhaps. So if you love spooky stories, tune in to Jim Harold's Campfire on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to this great podcast, Astonishing Legends. Thanks, Scott and Forrest, and stay spooky. There's a whole fleet of them. Look on the ASA. My gosh. They're all going against the wind. The wind's 120 knots to the west. Are you looking for the latest news on the United States government's investigations into unidentified aerial phenomena? More importantly, are you looking for the full story and the deeper history of aerial mysteries along with the less often explored aspects of our world? My name is Micah Hanks, and if you share my fascination with UFOs and the unexplained, along with how science, history, and government relate to topics like this, then you should be checking out my weekly podcast, The Micah Hanks Program, where I provide all the latest news on government UFO investigations and mysteries of our modern world. Join me every week as we go in pursuit of the anomalous and the enigmatic. It's The Micah Hanks Program, available online at micahhanks.com or anywhere you get your favorite podcasts. Forrest and Scott thank you for supporting their sponsors. I'm CJ Shutt. Now, back to the show. So we want to play that sampler there because you can see the different types of audio that's sent out and received. And they're not all the same. It depends on the technology, uh, what they prefer. And there's some interesting things to it. Like with the buzzer, you and I were talking about that before uh, we started recording. We are just uh, going over our notes here. And... And I thought that the buzzer, I read here that sometimes they're continuous and they're not meant to be listened to. So you'll hear an annoying buzz sound like that. And I think what the the thinking is, is that they are just dominating that channel, that frequency. And so the idea though is, is that they're there occupying it. So somebody else doesn't use it. It's too annoying. So they're just running this buzzer sound because like the PIP runs at 54, 48 kilohertz by day. And then during the evening, it's 37, 56 kilohertz. And it broadcasts in short repeated beeps at about 50 per minute for 24 hours a day. Right. So the idea though, is that uh, good love channel. And then, you know, it's very annoying, but the spy on the other end knows when to tune in. So they don't have to sit through all that. Also, they know when they're on the right frequency when they hear that. It's a beacon for them to find, right. but they're also squatting on the channel, making it hard for anybody else to broadcast, not just on the channel, but to broadcast misinformation to an operative. Exactly. 
Exactly. Yeah. So it's a way of securing it in a <laughs> in just kind of an annoying way. But it's also kind of cool. They're just, like you said, they're squatting on it. They're tying up the channel because what happens is that these are open and free to anybody, right? You ever, right. Nobody really owns the, the waves unless you're licensed for that in a particular country. But what can happen is we'll learn later is that, yeah, they bleed over each other sometimes. And you, right. you don't want to do that. You're wasting precious spy time. Right. So that's the same thing. The buzzer signal for UVB76 is also uh, transmitted in 25 tones per minute, 24 hours a day. That's why they think that they're connected somehow. Yes. Uh, but you'll never get an official uh, answer. But maybe you would sometimes in one particular case. But for right now, you were asking earlier, like, when doesn't it work? Well, <laughs> in 1989, it didn't really work out for a Czech spy in that they got arrested in the UK because his equipment was faulty. And it started radiating into other people's apartments or flats. Uh, so that's the thing where it sounds kind of comical, but people are like, what the bloody hell? You know, they're getting this uh, tremendous interference and it sounds like numbers. And uh, then they start calling authorities, they check into it. And the authorities, if that goes up the chain, they know what that's about. Like, ah, oh, who is this guy? Let's make a visit. Yeah. And he gets arrested. My wife's sister, whom I love very much is a, a Methodist minister and she had a small church here in North Carolina for a time that had a, a wireless radio in the sanctuary you know she would use it on her microphone and mm -hmm. every now and then it would pick <laughs> up like I think it was like a construction company or something while she was preaching oh, oh, the, the coolest thing about this though and I think I've said this before uh, she's no longer a minister in this town her um, and her husband have moved away from there but uh, it's Mount Airy, North Carolina. Yeah, that's right. Which is the uh, the basis for Mayberry that Andy Griffith, mm -hmm. when he did the Andy Griffith show. But uh, the other thing about Mount Airy is it is the home to the original Siamese twins, Chang and Ng Bunker, who yes. were in the Guinness Book of World Records, right. who settled there and had a family. I believe they married twins. And yeah. her congregation at the time was filled with bunkers. And they lived in a manse, the house for the ministers mm -hmm. that was associated mm -hmm. with the church that was built by Chang and Ng Bunker. That's pretty amazing. Yes. No, the people don't realize those brothers built a whole house by themselves. Yes. I mean, it had to be very coordinated, but they got it down. Yeah. It's just, that yes. blows my mind and, and uh, I'm, I'm very impressed with that. But yeah, that's a claim to fame of Mount Airy. But also your story reminds me of uh, Spinal Tap when they were oh. playing at the, uh, <laughs> was it the Air oh, Force yeah. Base? Yeah, right. they were picking up Oh yeah, uh, and the radio signals, signals were coming through. <laughs> That's right. Of course. And then uh, in the Partridge family, I think Lori was getting radio broadcasts over her braces. Right, uh, right. Weird stuff like that does happen occasionally, but of course it was throwing her off. So in this case, though, this is what's interesting is that you may think that this is uh, maybe a bunch of baloney. People are just uh, letting their imaginations run away from them, but there are coordinated real world political and military intrigue things that happen in coordination with spikes in radio station activity. So in this Czech case, when the Ceausescu regime collapsed, there was a cessation of broadcasts from Romania, this former GCHQ officer says. You can map these things, is that there's either a spike when something's happening or somebody gets nabbed and then there's no chatter. Right. <laughs> so right. that's how you know, like, maybe these are connected. Right. Yeah, these real-world events, especially the more dramatic ones. So that's the story out of Romania. Ceausescu ends his, let's say, reign there, and then all the chatter drops off. So it's trackable. 
But what about the U.S. here? Any any spy goings on? Well, if you remember in 1998, the number station known as Atención, originating out of Cuba, became the world's first officially identified station and was accused in a U.S. federal court of law of sending information to Cuban spies. This is from a 2001 article in the Miami New Times called Espionage is in the Air. Now, here's the deal. A spy ring of five Cuban intelligence officers, part of a Cuban unit called La Red Avispa, I think, or titled the WASP Network, were arrested on espionage charges in September of 1998 and were later known as the Cuban Five or the Miami Five. So federal prosecutors accused the five of receiving number codes from their handheld Sony shortwave radios and then typing those numbers into a laptop in order to decode their instructions. Now, here's some movie stuff that the FBI did. They broke into one of the spy's apartments and they copied the computer decryption program and were then able to decode the spy's instructions received from Atencion, the station. And some of the decoded messages were revealed and presented in court. Mm. Now, you can find this passage here or some of the decoded messages, and it's not much, of course, because you have to realize this is dealing with national security. But some of the messages were revealed in court, and you can find this uh, on the wiki page, actually, for number stations, if you look under the Atencion spy case section here. And this will tell you what kind of messages they're getting. Now, keep in mind, this is from Atencion in, in Cuba to these operatives in Miami. Quote, under no circumstances should, presumably agents, that's in brackets, Herman, or German, if you're English speaking here, nor Castor, fly with BTTR or another organization on days 24, 25, 26, and 27, end quote. Now, what BTTR is, is that they're the anti-Castro airborne group, Brothers to the Rescue. For people who don't know, that was a a Miami-based activist nonprofit organization formed by Cuban exiles. But I wonder, you and I wonder, it's like, why not fly on those days? What are you planning on doing to these people? Uh, Is there a plane that's going to go down? Yeah. What's happening? That's what you wonder. And so this wasn't just them goofing around, the Cuban Five here or the Miami Five. There was another message that was intercepted, which uh, should show you a little bit of the, the, the color or galore. Quote, congratulate all the female comrades for International Day of the Woman, end quote. So it's just probably, that's just a nice public service message to your operatives in the field. Or it may have some other deeper meaning. That might be a bit of code that they know of. Like, okay, yes, we should congratulate them, but also uh, that's a signal to do this or that. And so we don't know, though, if these messages were in Spanish, but from the wording, we presume that, uh, that they were. So again, that court case came up in 1998, and the point of that is that that's the first time officially the U.S. government accused foreign nationals of spying, and with the espionage, they were using, again, handheld shortwave Sony receivers and numbers codes with a one-time pad from Cuba. Right. Now, here's how that whole thing wrapped out. They were later convicted in Miami of conspiracy to commit espionage, to commit murder, and as agents of a foreign government and other illegal activities in the U.S. And it was made known that these five, uh, their mission was basically to infiltrate these Cuban-American groups uh, like Alpha 66, the F-4 Commandos, 
Cuban American National Foundation, and as we said, Brothers to the Rescue. And the idea, though, is that they would report back their activities. And the Cuban government finally acknowledged that the five were intelligence agents uh, in 2001 after denying it for three years. <laughs> but they, their excuse was like, hey, we're not spying on the U.S. government, just these anti-Castro exiles. That's it. But it was some bad stuff if you know that uh, they were attempting to murder people. So there you go. That's how that ended. But that was, I think, one of the first cases, maybe the only one, where it was revealed in a court of law, like, these number stations are real, and this is the purpose for them. Yeah, I love that. It confirms that, you know, we're not just speculating about number stations here. We're talking about what they actually proven to be. So that's a very valid point. Right. Here's something I'm just going to say, and I was looking this up because you had written up this portion of the outline. Mm -hmm. It says the FBI broke into that spy's apartment in 1995, but yeah. this didn't go to court until 1998. Yeah. And then that, that message said, nobody should, uh, these two guys should not fly with BTTR on days 24, 25, 26, and 27. It doesn't indicate a month. Mm -hmm. That's just the excerpt right. that's here. I'm just going to tell you that on February 24th of 1996, mm -hmm. a Cuban Air Force MiG-29 shot down a Brothers to the Rescue Cessna. Ooh. And uh. the interesting thing about this is, there's nothing in this article about the shootdown being related to that number station story. And then the number station article doesn't say anything about this particular downing of this aircraft. It was a multiple shootdown, <clears throat> according to this whole longer story. So I'm curious. Mm -hmm. I mean, it could be entirely unrelated, or perhaps they attacked the Brothers to the Rescue aircrafts on multiple times. But right. I can't help but wonder if that's connected. And the warning was like, especially if they were undercover, don't get on one of these planes because this a MiG's going to yeah. go up and take them down. Right. I don't know. And it's the 24th, February 24th, <laughs> 1996. So it's pretty early in 96. That message right. came through in 95. Maybe they didn't go to court till 98 to talk about it. But you do have to wonder if this 1996 encounter uh, yeah. was related to that message. I, I weirdly know. remember vaguely that happening. That was kind of a big deal because, uh, you know, it's a private airplane and yeah. these guys got shot down by the Cuban government. So I think it's possible and good find, my man. That was, uh, that yeah, was that was on the fly. We didn't have that. I just was looking that up while we were going through here. I, I'm going to, I want to dig a little bit deeper on this. Maybe I'll have yeah. some more information about it for the junk drawer next week on Patreon or right. something, but, uh, it's oh, very cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the deal is that you need a one-time pad. We're going to talk about the use and how it's uh, worked out, but it continues on because, uh, you know, that would be the late 90s into the 2000s. And then in 2016, you had some activity where North Korea, after a 16-year hiatus from doing any broadcasts, started broadcasting numbers into South Korea, and they think it was part of a psychological war or psyops psychological operations move just to freak people out. Like, what are they planning? What are they doing? That's a lot of their tactic there is uh, keep people guessing and afraid. So right. anyway, there's more to that, but just another blip on the radar here of the timeline of number stations. And here's just some interesting quotes, I think, from a couple of people we're going to talk about later tonight. And this comes from a an article, The Spooky World of the Number Stations by Olivia Sorel Desjardins from BBC News Magazine, published on April 16th, 2014. Just some interesting notes I found from that is that 
in these transmissions, you could hear a man's voice, a woman's voice, even a child's voice, which is creepy. And a lot of times these voices are synthesized. You're going to talk about that later, but yes. it adds to the weirdness of it. <laughs> There's uh, some other fun stuff that operators have given uh, some other number stations like Nancy, Adam, Susan. That would be N-A-S, could be Naval Air Station. Uh, there's some other codes here. Again, how they identify themselves depends on the country. Yes. We're going to talk about the Swedish Rhapsody or yes. the Gong Station. And those are some of the other famous ones that people have been following. But here's a quote from an author who specializes in espionage issues, Rupert Allison, who said, quote, nobody has found a more convenient and expedient way of communicating with an agent, he believes, because, oh, also he writes under the pen name Nigel West, goes on to say, their sole purpose is for intelligence agencies to communicate with their agents in denied areas, a territory where it's difficult to use a consensual form of communication. And the system is completely secure because the messages can't be tracked. The recipient could be anywhere, says Akeen Fernandez, who started the Conant Project, which is, again, that comprehensive archive of number stations. He goes on to say, quote, it is easy. You just send the spies to a country and you get them to buy a radio and then they know where to tune and when, he says. He goes on to say, once you hear them, it has an effect on you. I never expected to be talking about it 17 years after hearing it for the first time. And that's uh, when he started the Conet Project. And as some people have speculated, it's all an elaborate prank. And the answer to that is that the scale of it seems unfeasible. It's not just right. one person or a bunch of pranksters in different countries. Fernandez says that uh, people have been arrested with radios, one-time pads, and other standard evidence, along with some privately published books and magazines, yes. leading to evidence that these things exist. So That's right. So people have been caught. Well, Al Bolton, an amateur radio enthusiast, says, uh, reading again from this uh, article, computers and other more modern and advanced tech for messaging always leave traces and can be hacked. If you get caught with a computer, the info is still on them and can be retrieved. But paper and pen, like a one-time pad, are easily destroyed. Yes. So think about that. The more advanced tech, the easier it is to track it. Paper and pen, you can eat it. You can light it on fire. So many different things here. This message will self-destruct. <laughs> and then you're, yeah, and then you're, uh, the heel of your shoe starts smoking. Yeah. <laughs> well, the uh, the last thing from this article here, no government or intelligence agency has ever officially admitted or denied using number stations. Akeen Fernandez says, quote, once the Conant project was released, some spy agencies admitted that they were, quote, unquote, not for public consumption. This is as near to an admission that we have been able to obtain, end quote. So there you go. They do seem to exist. They're not just some uh, people playing pranks on the radio. I don't know how many years ago it was now, but there was an exhibit that came to the Ronald Reagan Museum in California. We went to that. Right, the spy exhibit. Remember that? Right. Yeah. Right. And I did. We took my son, and we went, and my mm -hmm. wife went, and uh, some other people. It's really, really cool museum. Regardless oh, of yeah. what you think about Ronald Reagan, I know everybody's got opinions, but there's an Air Force <laughs> One in there, inside, in a That's big true. glass building. Yeah. It is the coolest thing. But they had the spy exhibit there, and I remembered I was just completely enthralled with it. But one of the things they talked about was the Russian spy, mm -hmm. and I can't remember her name now. Oh yes, and she right. she wound up uh, getting sent back to Russia, but 
she was kind of sloppy. Her tradecraft was sloppy, but she had like a laptop. I remember this, that she had to yes. put in a purse and she would go. Right. Uh, and she was in New York, I believe, in Manhattan. And she yes, would go exactly. yep. into like a store, Barney's or something, and wander around. <laughs> and then uh-huh. the her contact would have to wander nearby who had a, right. a USB transmitter or receiver inside a bag. And all they had to do was get within a few feet of each other and information would be traded. But then the way yes. she got busted was some undercover operative like got friendly with her and she was just leaving her laptop with him at the coffee shop or something. <laughs> it was just got from real what I, Yeah, from what I remember, yeah. the FBI, the, this agent was able to swap out laptops. Yeah. I think yeah. that's she what happened. Yeah, she just got, and, you know, she's like, you want some more coffee? And then left the, you know, the spy <laughs> computer that's like connecting I'm her to Russia I'm getting a lemon bar and yeah. then, <laughs> right. And then, uh, you but, know, it, look, it, no, she got a lot of publicity because uh, she was attractive. Yeah, she's they, very pretty. I remember busted, that, yeah, uh, yeah. Part of it was that she, again, it's that uh, old spy trick of honeypotting yeah. some uh, diplomats or this and that because, uh, you know, guys are pretty dopey. Yeah. So they, yeah. they get sloppy too. And and people let their guard down yep. when somebody's uh, very alluring and appealing and they forget like, hey, that may, she really may not be into you. Yeah. <laughs> it may be just your job. <laughs> so yeah, that's what happened. And then she got sloppy and there you go. But this does happen. It does come up in the news occasionally. Oh yeah. It was Anna Chapman. That was her name. Anna that's Chapman. That's right. Yeah. So look yeah. her up. That's another one. I might add that to the junk drawer because that was fun to talk about. Oh, there you go. Mm-hmm. All right. I can't remember if we mentioned him yet. Do we mention Simon Mason? I think we did already. As with a lot of subjects we cover, we've come to know that there are generally a few people who take the standard. Uh, yes. that's like, the, I'm talking about like the, the old fashioned, the flag, <laughs> the standard yes. bearer, they take the lead and they get really into this stuff and they, they lead with the best research and inspire a lot of others. As Simon mentions on his now defunct website, which is yes. really complete at the time. And, you know, it's really hard to keep these things up. So he's on the Wayback machine. We'll have links of course, but he gives a shout out to the Conet Project and Akeen Fernandez or yes. Akeen Fernandez as being inspirational because uh, Mr. Fernandez put out a four-disc CD set of recordings yes. plus like a PDF book on all this. So these are the people you look to if you want some answers. And there are very few answers for people who are not with the company, as they say. Yeah. That's right. And so, uh, yes, Mr. Mason has taken his website down. I did see a video on there of him. He was recording a number station on a balcony. He was traveling somewhere. I can't remember. And he actually appears in the video. Oh, that's cool. I mean, this was a while back. The right. site's been down probably 10 years, but he's a fairly young guy. So I know he's still yeah. out there. Maybe he'll hear this. Mr. Mason, mm-hmm. if you hear this, I hope we're doing it justice. It's a very complex topic and we're just barely scratching the surface on it, but we're doing our best to keep it understandable for our listeners who probably have very little experience with shortwave radio and how all this stuff works. Mm-hmm. But we did want to talk about his book, which is a 37-page book. It's a quick read. You can get it as a PDF. He had it for free on his website. We have a link to it. It's all over the internet, actually. It's called Secret Signals, The Euro Numbers Mystery. And it was published by TR Publications, uh, T-I-A-R-E. They were in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. They're now closed down as well, too. I did try to track them down. I'm looking for other books by them about this, which is are very hard to find. 
But again, you can get the PDF for free on his own website on the Wayback Machine, and then we have links to it from other places as well. The book actually talks about a lot of individual stations, and Forrest has already talked about several of the famous ones, and he's even touched on a few of these here. But there were three in particular that I pulled out from uh, Mr. Mason's book. They were kind of the first three that he mentioned, but he goes on to talk about some other really weird ones, and there's lots of weird ones. If you're one of those (laughs) folks that's like kind of a collector or you get caught up in esoteric knowledge, you want to know all about something, yeah. this is a target-rich environment. Like, <laughs> if you get into number stations, yeah. you can go off the deep... Like, if you already have shelves and shelves of action figures or Lego sets, you get into number stations, you can do the same thing with information that you're doing with that stuff. Because there is a lot of it out there, and it's That's all very categorized true. and organized by a lot of people in different websites. Well, it's like any of these types of hobbies where you're mostly the observer. It's reminded me a little bit of uh, train spotting. You know what that is? From the, yeah. Of course, there's the yeah. Danny Boyle movie, which was fantastic and extremely disturbing. But it's taken, <laughs> I think, from the UK hobby of just, uh, I think it's kind of associated with slackers maybe, where you just got to sit at a bench or a station and you mark the numbers of trains that come by. But also there are people who are really involved in train memorabilia and know a lot about it. It's just one of those subjects where people get really into it and they know all the different models and numbers, uh, the different locomotives and cabooses, uh, (laughs) kaboobai, multiple cabooses. They mark these numbers of which are passing through the station. And that might be related a little to perhaps like bird watching, where these things are elusive. Yeah. There's a bit of elusiveness in all this, like these number stations. You don't know uh, really what the schedules are. Sometimes they're posted. Sometimes, as we said before, they switch them up to keep people on their toes or off their toes. And uh, they change up the patterns a little bit. So Yeah, they change the frequencies. They change the time of broadcast. So you kind of right. you have to hunt around a little bit. But a lot of times they'll right. have uh, some kind of mnemonic feature that while yes. you're going down the dial, if you hear that, you know you've found them again. That's one element of spycraft is you change your patterns, right. uh, especially if you are uh, possibly being observed or targeted for some bodily harm. You want to switch up your daily routines because people are noticing that. And so you, you throw in that element of surprise or sometimes you stick to one and it's a false surprise. You know, it's diversion. That's what we're talking about here. That's also part of this is Uh, leading people on. So in this pursuit of this hobby, that's how it started off, is that these people are hobbyists. Uh, They love shortwave radio. They came across something unusual, and now they're just tracking it. And you're starting to get a picture of what these things are. That's right. So that's why we're saying that between operators in this community, they've come up with nicknames and designations, and they're being tracked. You got to know that, of course, the people who are originating this stuff know they're being tracked and and monitored. They must be having a a fun laugh. Yeah. Well, at this point, we see this too, is when when somebody speculates about something that's kind of mysterious and they're way off, he gives you a little bit of a chuckle. Yeah, right. We're like, whoa, you don't know how close you are. Yeah. One of the first stations that uh, Mason talks about in his book is called the Four Note Rising Scale Station. It was heard from the 1970s up until May 3rd of 1990, and that date is going to become more significant, especially 1990 here in a minute. We'll talk about that. Six months after the fall of the Berlin Wall. So we have some sound clips to share here. Uh, like most of the others, we, which we've downloaded from Simon Mason's now defunct website via the Wayback Machine or the Internet Archives, as Forrest mentioned, some of the other ones came from the Enigma 2000 website, which uh, their website is signalshed.com. Mm-hmm. And a few are from Wikipedia postings. And they have a really great index, ongoing tracking, a very active community over there at Enigma 2000. uh, And that site's still up. 
there's some other sites that we'll mention here in a few minutes, but if you want to go down the rabbit hole, there's a lot of stuff to, that you can do to get into this, especially if you're already a radio enthusiast now. And we'll have links to all of this in the show notes. Now, with regard to Mr. Mason's website, as far as we know, most of the ones that are there are ones that he recorded himself, uh, but there's some other ones that folks sent in to him and he made available publicly. Now, we're only providing some snippets to give you guys just a feel for what these stations sounded like. You can listen to a lot of this kind of audio at various number stations, research pages all over the internet, including YouTube. There's a bunch of stuff on YouTube. So here is a, a little bit of a segment from the four-note rising scale station. Sarah? Long periods of time would sometimes pass between messages, leading some to speculate that they might have been for training or perhaps it was simply mm -hmm. to throw off intelligence services they're listening. Another thing that would yeah. happen is the same messages would be broadcast sometimes as much as a year apart, exact same sequences of numbers would be sent. Mm. And so that's why they were talking about training. They're thinking, oh, well, maybe this is a training message. The person knows where to go to check it out. Someone's new in the field or whatever. There's that kind of thing. There's another thing that happens and they call markers, which is where they park a sound on the channel because they want to keep that channel occupied. We alluded to this a little bit earlier. Mm -hmm, they don't want it mm -hmm. to someone else to start broadcasting on it, but they want to hang on to it because that's the channel that their people in the field know that they need to come back to, or the frequency, I should say, rather than channel. And so what happens is they'll have a marker there, which will be a buzzer or some other thing that makes a noise. And uh, from what I've read, visiting different forums, Reddit's got some stuff on number stations or whatever, people are like, the markers go down. They break. Because some people are like, hey, where is it? I don't know where the marker is. Like right now, there's a station called UVB76, which is still active. Yeah, the buzzer. The buzzer, right? Yeah, the buzzer. Right. And so the and when the marker goes down there, somebody had posted on Reddit, the marker's down. You know, is, is it weird or whatever? And this other, you know, the other people who are like the old timers are like, nah, they break all the time. They go down all the time. It's all still very analog, it seems like. But they keep it on there. Mm -hmm. They probably to maintain ownership of the channel. Well, as you said earlier, it's a good term is squatting, right? So you're, you're right. elbowing everybody off that frequency. And as I said before, it's also, depending on your radio, I know some of the older dials. Now, of course, you know, nowadays they all have LED digital readouts. You can dial a precise frequency pretty easily. But if you've ever played yes. with the dial, what's the gearing on that? Where they, you can go through a lot of digits with a small turn of the dial, right? It's not oh, like yeah, the it's old... like a compound <laughs> gearing. Like, right, yeah, exactly. Right. So it's not like the yeah. old AM radio, which is the spoke knob on the side and you're thumbing through that. The station's literally in a small band. There are lots of channels to go through. And my thing earlier was that if you have a, a fairly crude radio, let's say you were uh, deep 
in a Eastern Bloc country and it's things are hard to get or you had to get this off the black yeah. market, it'd be easier to hear a tone to let you know you're in the ballpark, right? Yeah, that's right. it. That's exactly. the buzzer. Oh, I found it. I'm back here. This is where I got to be. I need to see what time the message is going to come. And we'll explain this a little bit here in a, in a minute. Now, I didn't want to say we've already said this, but it bears repeating. These are coded espionage, nine times out of 10 probably, related messages that anyone in the world who wanted to could listen to. It was broadcast publicly, but without the one-time pad or whatever other means of deciphering, although it's doubtful there were many other ones, the information was completely useless to every listener on the planet, but the individual or individuals it was meant for. Now, during the Cold War, number stations were probably used to communicate to thousands of foreign operatives for multiple governments for decades. And the messages would run in multiple languages, sometimes on the same station, English, German, uh, Spanish. If a message had a slash in it, in German, the slash would be the word Trenung. Well, on November 9th of 1989, the Berlin Wall fell in Germany. And this represented a massive shift that led to the fall of communism in Eastern and Central Europe. Now, according to Mason, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, the German government had offered amnesty to former members of the Stasi. But only a few hundred took advantage of that potentially thousands did not. The Stasi, for folks who don't know, were the official state security services of the GDR, or German Democratic Republic. To this day, it is considered one of the best intelligence services there has ever been. The headquarters were in East Berlin, which was communist, and it had one leader for 32 of its 40 years. It was all about turning people against people and the Stasi arrested over one quarter million citizens as political prisoners between 1950 and 1990. I mean, this was literally pitting families against each other, husbands and wives, well, um, yeah. just trying to get information, intimidate folks, and control the narrative in the non-communist parts of Western Germany. Yeah, Western it Britain. wasn't a good thing if you like freedom and safety yeah. and uh, not getting beat up yeah. <laughs> so, or killed. So, yeah, exactly. uh, well, as people, you know, some people may not know the conflict that happened when Berlin was divided down the middle and we had to do the Berlin airlift uh, in, in Kennedy days. And it was such a, a marvel just to feed, you know, that city was starving. And I have uh, since visited Berlin. And Tess just got back from there, by the way. She yeah, just exactly. got back from there. It's still very noticeable yeah. when you walk into the East Berlin half of that, which is open now, of course. Right, right. But, you know, you see the, uh, was it the, the, the ball radio tower there? And yeah. it just like, it's like somebody turned the chroma down. It just yeah. immediately gets yeah. drab and uh, very Eastern block and very repressive. And, and of course, I hadn't been there since the, the late 90s, but it was cool because you can get an apartment for like, you know, $150 a month. And you right. had a, uh, your hallway of flatmates would have a charcoal burner for a water heater. Right, That's, right. It was real rough. And you can imagine yeah. how rough life was back then. People who, who uh, were about my age who grew up then in the East German portion of that would say uh, that you would get history books. And uh, in your history book, there'd be a map of Europe and anything west of that East Berlin demarcation line, Checkpoint Charlie, was blank. It's like, right. you don't need to worry about this, yeah. any of yeah. that. It's not yeah. there for you. So right. they were just told to ignore it. And you had a choice of learning. Uh, you know, most people I know who are from Berlin or grew up in that time, you could, they chose to learn English. And of course, people growing up in East Berlin chose to learn German, aside from German, right? So, right. yeah, it just, it shows you what a different world it was and uh, how repressive it was. And so that's why they were pretty overjoyed when that wall came down. 
Yes, they were. And it was, you know, we were old enough to remember when it was on the news. It was a big deal. It was a world-changing moment. So there was this division of the Stasi known as the main directorate for reconnaissance in eastern Berlin. And this was who oversaw espionage and covert operations in foreign countries, much like the CIA does for the United States. So these are the folks that would have had number stations broadcasting from communist East Germany into the parliamentary republic style of government in West Germany. With this, they could send messages to spies and even communist sympathetic terrorists that would aim to sow discord and destabilize West Germany. Now, the KGB was puppet managing the Stasi anyway, so those spies that didn't come in when the wall fell may have just maintained their covers and gone to work for the KGB directly now that East Germany was no longer in the picture. These would be fully developed and incredibly competent assets that would require only new handlers and they'd be ready to go. No training, it's low cost, it's an easy switch. Now, Mason points out, though, that this would have been difficult to do after Germany became unified. So the theory is that the broadcasting for these ongoing operations might have moved into embassies where the antennas could hide among numerous other broadcasting devices on the roofs of those buildings that they used to talk to their home countries as a standard operating procedure. Now, the Berlin Wall fell in 89. Simon Mason wrote Secret Signals in 1991, just two years later. And at that time, several stations were still in operation, including the Swedish Rhapsody station that Forrest mentioned just a few minutes ago. Mason printed a copy of the predictable broadcast schedule of that station. Here is some audio from it. When Mason wrote Secret Signals, the Swedish Rhapsody Station's origin was not known, but in 2014, the Polish government declassified some information on that, stating that it was operated by the secret police arm of the Polish Republic, known as the Ministry of Public Security. It was broadcasting from the late 50s through 2007. The station was famous for using the voice of what was thought to be a young German girl, which Mm. people found disconcerting. Now, the reason folks called it the Swedish Rhapsody Station was because they thought the music was Swedish Rhapsody Number no. 1 by Hugo Alfane, mm. if 
I'm saying that right. But Polish intelligence eventually stated that it was Emily Reisdorf's Luxembourg Polka, played Ooh. from a Rouge, R-E-U-G-E, music box. Wouldn't it be cool if it was ABBA? Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, Waterloo, something. Yes, yeah. Waterloo. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, I did look at these music boxes on eBay. No such luck. Not with that no, song, anyway. Some of right. them are in the thousands of dollars, by the way. It would be cool, though, to get one of them that played that song. It could be they all got snatched up. but Or destroyed, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, or destroyed. Well, the messages on the Swedish Rhapsody Station were intended to be decoded with the use of a one-time pad. We're going to explain more about that shortly. When the Soviet Union dissolved in 1991, and in turn, communism fell in Poland, the station stopped broadcasting. But interestingly, between 1998 and 2007, it went back on the air, but in English. It was thought to be used by NATO agents in Eastern Europe, according to Wikipedia. Here's mm-hmm. a soundbite of it, rebroadcasting uh, it from 98 to 2007 in English. The third and final station that I was going to mention from the extensive list in Mason's book, which there's probably 20 or 30 in there, is the NNN station, which I believe was called that because it started out with Morse code of the letter N repeated three times. And uh, this was one of the most complex stations Mason mentions, or he called it that, in The Secret Signals, because it's thought to have maybe been originating from Prague. The station is multilingual, but the person voicing the numbers was not great at the other languages. Mm. Mason described her voice as staccato, but I think this is because it was before he likely discovered the voice generator boxes that were behind these broadcasts, which we're also going to talk about here in a minute. Right, right. Mason describes the NNN station as the largest of all number stations, broadcasting on different frequencies over many varied hours of operation in three languages, German, English, and Spanish. He also said that monitors in the United States thought it was connected to the CIA or the NSA. Again, keep in mind, this is back in uh, 91. Or at least that's what they thought when he wrote Secret Signals. However, more current research at this website, another great website if you're wanting to look into this more, numbers, and then there's a dash, stations.com. So that's numbersstations.com with a hyphen between numbers and stations. More recent research there says that it has since been determined that that station was run by the Austrian Army Intelligence Office, or the HNA. And that station's been inactive now since 1997. Another thing that would happen is that stations were frequently interrupted by jamming. And Mason talks about different kinds of jammers that they used. One uh, specifically that he mentioned, which I thought was interesting, was called the Warble Jammer. Mm -hmm. Uh, He describes it in this passage. Forrest, will you share this passage from uh, Secret Signals? 
Right. I was just going to say that has happened in the earliest days of military uh, signal corps operations where, yes. where the Germans were set up on the Dutch coast and they would intercept allied or A3 telephonic traffic and scramble it and just basically try to mess you up, right? So yes, right. Yeah, they were both aware of everything that was going on and they were always trying to outwit each other with new machinery. And that it leads to the Sig Sally machine, which uh, we may or may not talk about later. But this is the passage from the book where he talks about specifically jamming here around the, uh, the late 80s. So the passage goes, around the end of 1989, both the English four-figure and the 3-2F were starting to be affected by what are known as bubble or warble jammers. These are unlike the jammers used for years by the Soviet Union, which sounded like a room full of diesel engines or someone blowing into a microphone hooked to a powerful public address system. These warblers sounded like a rapid oscillating signal, sort of a very fast woo-woo-woo. One evening on 9251, it seemed that the woo-woo machine was in trouble. It was jamming another English station. The warbling noise kept slowing down and speeding up. I imagine technicians scrambling all around with oil cans, trying to keep the woo-woo machine rotating at full speed. You know, that was going to be my pitch. If we didn't like Astonishing Legends, that would be my other pitch. For the <laughs> with the woo-woo machine? The woo-woo I, machine. I love it. Yeah, well, <laughs> uh, we had to go out and talk about woo-woo for quite a while before it became uh, connected with us and us yeah, personally right. and our right. beliefs. So, uh, <laughs> but I, I do love it as a title. But uh, that's something I want also people to know about in the early days, especially uh, the days of the Enigma machine and Sig Sally and some of these uh, secret machines, there was an electromechanical component to it. So the yes. machine that Alan Turing was working on was a early form of electromechanical computer of sorts. So right. that is to mean it's not like an old adding machine, which has no electrical components. It's just mechanics, right? And gears and levers. And you punch the button, you turn the crank and it adds for you. This had an electrical aspect to it, which turned machinery. So right. it wasn't like the days we have now where it's all electrical components, solid state. Remember that phrase when you're talking about yeah. tiny radios? I didn't really understand that as a kid. It just seemed like, oh, well, this is cool. It's a solid state radio, whatever that means. It's like, well, that right. means it doesn't have big vacuum tubes in it, you dummy. That's why it's so tiny is that now you have transistor radios and people didn't know what that term meant. It's like, because I didn't grow up with uh, the big cathedral radios and the Peter Pan radios uh, right. that my dad did in the 50s. Not even you were that old. Right, exactly. But we did, <laughs> when I was growing up, we did have bulb testers at the grocery store. I remember that. Yeah. Because a yeah. lot of things like your TV, when I was growing up, it was run by tubes. Right. Instead of uh, transistors and more compact electronics, you needed these tubes to run this. That's why during the Cold War in that era, this got easier. You didn't have to well, sit around a, a giant tube <laughs> radio that took 30 seconds to heat up. Well, and tubes are, mu it's a much warmer sound. And a, a lot of the analog I audio know. files yes. that listen to their record players, they buy those old it's tube amps or new tube amps because there's now there's these really expensive ones. This is the thing. Everything yeah. old is of new course. again. It's a tube amp. So it's basically 60s technology, 50s technology, but at prices from 2050 <laughs> now, like thousands of dollars <laughs> of course. for something it's that be, people yeah. were putting in their trash. Yeah. In the 70s. That's the way it goes, is that... It does uh, sound better, though. I've heard it. It does well, sound Well, yeah, better. if you I like that, especially audiophiles like that warm, hi-fi sound. And, of course, it's been perfected. So it's not exactly like the old days. There's been... Uh, it's like with ribbon microphones. Uh, there's new technology that comes in that is uh, emulating 
the warmer sounds of the past. So it's not too digital. And we're using and you and I are both using right now. That's true. That, yes, in our in our we setup, have a, yeah. we have a a launcher made by a Soyuz. Talk about Soyuz. Russian tech uh, microphone yeah, it's communication right. it's a technology. Russian company. It is made by real Russians. <laughs> they sign the. They have little cards that they put in the box to tell you who exactly yeah. put your uh, your stuff together. So I was going to ask you, what is that really expensive hi-fi where the tubes are just in a in a row exposed? Macintosh, <sighs> not spelled like the computer. M C I N T O S H. I've just they seen have them. tube amps. Yeah. They're ridiculously pricey. Aren't There's they? a lot of companies that yeah, it's like if you have to ask, you can't afford it, kind of stuff. Right, um, right. So this all yeah. goes with I would say the use and ease around the Cold War of the system and why it was so implemented in that radios got smaller. You have to remember that in that in the 60s and 70s, it was still a big deal to have a smaller transistor radio and especially a ham radio. If you've seen big ham setups, those boxes were big. Now they're the size of a walkie-talkie. Yeah. I had one. I never got to use it. It was donated to me when I was in the Boy Scouts, believe it or not. Yes, it was a Boy Scout. Go Mm -hmm. ahead and make fun of me. I had a full ham set up and my scoutmaster had some knowledge about it. So he was like, I'll set it up at my house and you can come over. The whole troop can use yeah. it. And I was like, yeah, great. Cause I don't mm-hmm. know what I'm doing. Cause you had to put an <laughs> antenna on the roof that has motors yes. so you could tune yeah. it and all this. So we got it. Like I got all the gear over there that was donated to me from, I can't remember somebody who was getting older and, mm-hmm. but, and it was a room full of stuff. And we put it over to my scoutmaster's house and about two months later, it burnt to the ground. Oh, wow. <laughs> really? That's, and uh, so that that's stuff horrible. was lost. Yeah. yeah. And God rest his soul. He was a great man. I was very fond of him, but um, the, uh, it burned to the ground. And that's a story I think I've told on the show before because he had uh, several kids, uh, two sons and a daughter, and he had said, hey, we're going to go to the beach. We're going to take a road trip and go see these folks. And his one oldest son, who was a, a good friend of mine to this day, was like, I don't want to go. I'm, I stay here. There's a, mm-hmm. I'm going to have, you know, I want to have a big party while you're gone. And his dad, the scoutmaster, was like, nope, you're coming with us. We have to go see Aunt Polly or whatever. And he's mm-hmm. like, no. And he like got in it. So he made him go, and he got in the car, and he pouted all the way to the right. beach or wherever they went. Yeah. And the house exploded. And the fire was so bad, wow. like brass lamps melted. Had the son stayed home, he likely could have been killed. Yeah. And had he had a party like he wanted, uh, lots of people could have been killed. But yeah, you know yeah. what was definitely killed was my ham radio. It was killed. <laughs> well, <that's, laughs> so I never that got is to too use bad. It. I but the ham radio was not the cause of the fire, right? No, no, no. It was, I think yeah. it was a gas explosion or something like. Oh, that's okay. a hot water heater or something like that. Yeah, it was a long time ago. But the man, my scoutmaster, being such a great man, everybody like people came out of the woodwork. This yeah. was in Raleigh, North Carolina. Donated clothes, an apartment, everything, because he was just a salt of the earth guy. Everybody came to their aid. Good evening, everybody. My name is Adam. And my name's Matt. And we are Graveyard Tales. And we take a look at the history behind haunted places, ghost encounters, and cryptid encounters. And we take a look at odd phenomena, like spontaneous human combustion and out-of-body experiences. And we take deep dives into remote viewing, alien abductions, Ed and Lorraine Warren, and the Salem Witch Trials. And we try to approach all topics with a good blend of the paranormal scary stuff and a little bit of the light-hearted humor. Have you ever wondered just how haunted the Stanley Hotel is? Ever wanted to know more about Aleister Crowley? Or what about numerology? Or the tarot? Or time travel? Well, on Graveyard Tales... Adam and I cover all these topics and more. So if you're interested in the paranormal, fringe science, cryptids, ancient civilizations, you name it, 
If it's strange, scary, or on the outskirts of the imagination, we'll discuss it just like good friends sharing a beer and interesting conversation. So if that sounds cool to you, go check us out on GraveyardPodcast.com or you can find us on Patreon.com slash Graveyard Tales. Yeah, just search Graveyard Tales on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, or any of your favorite podcatchers. Until then, we'll save you a seat in the graveyard. See you soon. Welcome to the Kryptonite Podcast, hosted by Mark Stores, Chris Carnicelli, and Rob Morphy. The Kryptonite Podcast is your irreverent and unwholesome guide through the weird side of the already wild world of paranormal lore. Covering an array of enigmatic entities from Octasquatch, Sam the Sandown Ghost Clown, and Jeff the Eighth Dimensional Mongoose. Bolstered by a roster of bizarre beings like the Loveland Frogmen, cosmic fairies, headless horrors, alien octopoids, carnivorous clouds, stick men, ultra-terrestrials, space penguins, and flying fiends, including our notoriously in-depth six-part series on the legendary Mothman of Point Pleasant. So if you're into accounts of lone archers strapped to a tree firing flaming clothing onto a pair of toxic robots and their alien masters, then you've come to the right place. Join us each week while we explore everything from cryptozoology, ufology, unsolved mysteries, conspiracies, and the occult, all while keeping a close eye on our reptilian overlords that dwell in the flat, hollow, robot-infested Earth. We are available at kryptonautpodcast.com and every major podcast platform, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and YouTube, where we also post weekly video shorts. Be sure to check out our bonus content at patreon.com slash kryptonotpodcast. We offer weekly audio and video episodes, including access to our private Discord server where we host monthly events. This is the Kryptonaut Podcast. Hello, my loves. It's Rockhead Fox. And when I'm not researching and recording fantastically strange things... I like taking a listen to Astonishing Legends. Now, while I brew up a little something new, let's get back to the show. Well, there's two aspects to how this works. I was yeah. looking today at the uh, World War II machines, and the efficiency and the secrecy all rely on this idea of the one-time pad. Now, it doesn't have to be a pad. What you have to have is between the transmitting and the receiving, which is the spy. Yeah. What we're talking about here is that it got easier to receive. That's right. It got easier and more deniable if you were caught with something. That's right. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. But what I was going to say is that you have to be in sync between the receiver and uh, the sender, as we said, because like the Enigma machine, that had to be in tune with the receiver. So basically, that's actually in the movie, I think, the imitation game with Benedict Cumberbatch is that they had until midnight because those codes would be changed. That's right. And then they had to start over. Right. So then you you had to start over again, but your recipient had to have the same key. Right. If they didn't, the whole thing does not work. Right. So you have to you do have to be in sync and that has to be arranged beforehand and you have to keep changing it to be elusive. So what's interesting is these stations were frequently interrupted by jamming according to Mason. There was lots of different kinds of jamming. One that I thought was particularly interesting was called the warble jammer. 
So we were wondering what this warble jamming would sound like, and we found a great blog entry at a website called radiohobbyist.org, which is run by Chris Smolinski. We've been in touch with Chris, and he gave us permission to share information as well as some of the sound bites he had from his website here on tonight's show. Thanks, Chris, very much. Also, Chris's company, which I promised to give a shout out to in return for him letting us use these uh, sound bites and some of the information on his webpage. The company is called Black Cat Systems. They have a bunch of developers creating all kinds of cool Windows and Mac compatible software, including iOS and Android software for audio, graphics, science and health, and ham radio, like we were just talking about. Just a few of their apps include one called Atomic Mac, which is a comprehensive periodic table of the elements containing both physical, chemical, and nuclear information. Uh, they have another one called Audio Quarter, which is a sophisticated audio recording utility that can operate both as a manually operated recorder as well as automatically recording based on a schedule or only when sound is audible, like it might be good for EVPs. They have another one called Soundbite, the ultimate cart machine for the Macintosh. You can quickly and easily choose between hundreds of songs, sound effects, and other audio files. So anyway, check them out, Black Cat Systems. We have a link to all this in our show notes for this episode, but we did reach out to Chris about his blog. And the reason we did that was because he had a blog entry relating to a station Forrest mentioned just a bit ago, known as the Lincolnshire Poacher, and more specific samples of it being jammed. We share the following with permission from Chris from his 1998 blog post, which uh, we have a link to. So I'm going to read this directly off that blog post. Several number stations are known for playing signature tunes at the beginning of each transmission, supposedly as an aid for recipients tuning into the station, like we were talking about. The mm -hmm. Lincolnshire Poacher is perhaps the best-known example of this type of station. Its signature tune is an old English folk song called the Lincolnshire Poacher, which Forrest explained. The tune is played at the beginning and end of each transmission, along with a five-digit identifier, presumably the recipient of the message. A female voice is used with a distinctly British accent. This station is believed to be operated by MI6, the British Intelligence Agency. There is a sister station, the Cherry Picker, which transmits in the Far East. It's another one we also mentioned. Cherry Ripe. That's yes. the nick. The nickname is Cherry Ripe. Also developed into a folk song from a, a poem that was actually from the 1500s, the late 1500s into the 1600s. And then I think in the 19th century was tuned into a folk song. So it's, it's very widely known. Uh, you probably heard it in some movies, some old movies, and didn't know it. But yeah, that's Cherry Ripe. Oh. But the sister station, they think, was beaming into the Far East. Uh, and as you say here... It's known also as the cherry picker, right? I feel like we should start a station and maybe we could do like a Lue Luai or uh, <laughs> La Bamba, like a good well, like, cultural to, touchstone song. Yeah, but it's going to be an 8-bit tone, right? right because right, it right. can't be, uh, it's got to be simple. That's the one thing that's interesting about all these stations that do play tunes, because obviously they don't all do that. Some right. just, uh, like the Cuban station, as we mentioned earlier, was Atención. Yes. Except it was a, a woman, I think. Atención. And uh, that just lets you know, okay, it's about to begin. And also you need to know when the numbers break, right? Yes. So that would be an interval signal of like, okay, that message has ended. Next one's going to begin or we're done here. Yes. And they would say, uh, you know, I think the Russians would uh, would speak several like zero, 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 you know, Z, 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 whatever it was. They would say that that's the end of the transmission because... You all, like I said, this is a bit tenuous. You need to know, wait, is there, is there more? Yeah, is there another number? Are, are we done? Is there another That's very important radio. word, like abort? <laughs> exactly like yeah. oh by the way you might be killed yeah uh you know but really that's they're why coming people now? over the radio wait they're coming when <laughs> you have five yeah. minutes yeah no when people say over 
you hear that in the movies all the time, right? If you're not been on the radio, the reason they do that is like, are you done speaking? Is there more? You say yeah. over. That's I'm done speaking. Now you can talk. Yeah, that's what Forrest you know wants that, me to do when I text him because I do that thing where I hit return after every just, <laughs> every phrase, every sentence. At least you're you're self aware, yes. and I just go get a snack. That's yeah. what I do. But anyway, <laughs> all right. So here's a sample of a Lincolnshire poacher message as documented by Chris Malinsky on his website. It starts with the Lincolnshire poacher tune, which would be repeated twelve times. Then there's an identifier five zero three three eight repeated 10 times. Then six musical notes, which means the message is about to begin, and that's sent at 10 minutes past the hour. Then um, a grouping of numbers might be like 83840, 83840, 57389, 57389. This would be the actual message text, which he said was Mm -hmm. always 200 five-figure groups. Each group repeats. So that's the actual content of the message. Right. And one characteristic that I described but didn't, uh, I guess you could hear it in in the clip, but the female voice would always end the last number higher. So it'd be five, seven, three, eight, nine. Right. Yes. Or five, seven, three, eight, nine. Right. Which is a clue that you're you're at the end of this. In case you had a bad signal and something cut out, you would know that was the end there. Then there would be six musical notes again played at the end of the message, and then the tune would be played one more time. Uh, he did say, and this is what I loved, he said the Lincolnshire poacher is often subject to a powerful warble jammer. Since the station uses a fixed number of frequencies and a predictable schedule, it makes for being a very easy jamming target. The jammer facilities are believed to be in Iraq. So uh, we've already played an example of the Lincolnshire Poacher Station, but here's a sample from Chris's website of a warbler jammer in action, just so you can hear what that sounded like, the woo-woo that Forrest was talking about. Uh, Sarah, can you roll that clip? Chris also posted an actual sample of the poacher being actively jammed. This is what I loved and really wanted to get permission to use. With the following description, this is what he wrote. Sometimes, although rarely, number stations are jammed by pirate radio operators. Here's one example. A pirate QRMing the Lincolnshire poacher on 6959 kilohertz. And that means essentially talking over it. This is certainly not a very smart move by the pirate, since it is quite likely to annoy the radio monitors of the NSA, who are most likely monitoring and recording all number stations' activity. It's interesting to note that several pirates in the past who operated on frequencies frequented by number stations have been busted by the FCC, such as Voice of the Voyager on 6840 kHz, and several pirates which operated on 7415 kHz which was used to relay traffic between Cuba and Moscow. 6840 kilohertz, of course, was at one time perhaps the single most active numbers station frequency. All right, so here is a sample of the Lincolnshire Poacher channel being actively jammed by a pirate. Seven, 
Thanks again to uh, Chris. Chris, thank you so much. Malinsky for giving us permission to use that audio. Again, if you want to check out the software, check out blackcatsystems.com. He's got a lot of cool apps up there. So uh, to paint the broader picture here, you got coded messages being coded by intelligence operations sent to a broadcaster who then broadcasts the code publicly, blind to the message themselves that they're sending. And in turn, that message can sometimes be jammed as it's being sent, although, as Simon Mason has pointed out, that frequently the jamming seems to be ill-timed or ineffective. It all feels very haphazard, very much like, don't look over here, which uh, I always think Mm. of spies like us, where they're trying to get Mm -hmm. the attention of the other people, and they're like, look up here, like trying to (laughs) be a bird. (laughs) Yes, right. This is is basically analog cold warfare. Now, earlier, Forrest pointed out an actual trial related to a number station being used for espionage. And that was related to the Atencion station that he just mentioned and Cuba. There was, however, another trial. And since intelligence agencies tend to deny that these number stations even exist, these trials can stand in as proof that that is exactly what they're for, at least some of the time. Now, listen to this excerpt from Mr. Mason's book, Secret Signals. It makes reference to a spy literally caught in the act of receiving messages from a number station. His real name was Vaclav Yelenek. He is also known as the spy with no name because when he got busted, he was Erwin Van Harlem. More on that in the show notes, but I'm going to read this excerpt from Mason's book. During the trial of an alleged Dutch art dealer named Erwin Van Harlem, certain facts relating to numbers broadcasts came to light. Even the popular tabloid sheet papers carried the story. Officers of the British Special Branch burst into the spy's flat and caught him while he was copying a message in five-figure groups being transmitted in Morse code from Prague. In addition to the partially transcribed message, certain tradecraft items were discovered. These included six decoding pads, three of which were concealed in a bar of soap, chemicals, equipment for sending invisible ink messages, and magazines addressed to Czechoslovakia, which contained hidden messages. The British government had evidence that showed Van Harlem had been receiving secret messages from Prague since 1975, with about 200 messages sent over 13 years. Also found was a list of places where messages could be left and contact made with other agents. These accounts were another positive link between the numbers stations and the hidden world of espionage. So uh, I thought this was pretty fascinating. I love the stuff that was hidden in the soap. Now, our, our research shows <laughs> that Van Harlem, or Harleem, it's H-A-R-L-E-E-M, was actually Yelenek, and he was found guilty in less than an hour of deliberations and sentenced to 10 years in jail in March of 1989, just prior to the fall of the Berlin Wall. And more importantly, the Velvet Revolution, which saw the end of communism in the Czech Republic. That took place between November 17th to the 28th of 1989, and it led to the end of 41 years of communism there. The Communist Party had seized power uh, there in early 1948. Here's a little excerpt from Wikipedia on that. On January 1st, 1993, Czechoslovakia 
peacefully dissolved. That's why it's called the Velvet Revolution. With its constituent states becoming the independent states of the Czech Republic and Slovakia. Following an unsuccessful escape attempt in a period on hunger strike, as well as lobbying on his behalf by Czech diplomats, Jelinek was freed on April 5, 1993, and deported to the Czech Republic. As of 2016, Jelinek was living in Prague. So uh, this guy's theoretically still around. Yeah. Caught in the act. I mean, it doesn't get any worse if you're a spy. Wait, just let me finish this message. Um, <laughs> well, so uh, I think he's the one that Mark Rylance played in Bridge of Spies. No, no, that was a different guy. That was a different guy who uh, also was, I think, caught in the act. Um, yeah. If but you that wasn't a number that, station thing. That was He was uh, doing something else, but yeah. Right. I think part of that story, if I remember correctly, this is real, is that people think that that's it's kind of silly movie stuff. Uh, Don Adams gets smart kind of thing. Yeah. But there was some uh, microfilm that was in a nickel, a fake nickel. That's that right. You could yeah. uh, split into two pieces. And I think a kid figured that out. Like he said, there's something weird with this. And he pried it apart. Yeah. Then notified the authorities and that tipped off the FBI. Right. So right. Uh, these things do happen. And it's happening right now. We just don't know about it. That's right. That's right. Well, now I want to talk about the machine. It turns out there was a machine making these noises. And this just elevates the whole uh, complexity and security of the game. It's pretty fascinating stuff. And there's a really good find on this on the internet. So we're going to talk about this a little bit here. Now, throughout history, technology has been developed during wartime that was later revealed to the masses as having been the first use of something previously inconceivable. Turns out there was a machine at the heart of most of the number station's recordings that was this exact type of device. Now, when the layman first hears a number station, they might think, oh, how strange. This is either a real person sitting in a room mechanically repeating numbers or it's some kind of recording device. But in the 50s and 60s, how would you manage constantly changing numeric codes, sometimes on extremely short notice? Well, it turns out there was this small device, not unlike the Enigma decoding machine that we mentioned earlier from World War II, that was invented just to create and control numbers stations' messages. And it also introduced an added layer of security to protect the messages themselves. It's called the Stasi Sprach Morse or Stimme Morse Generator. This means speech or voice <laughs> Morse generator. According to numbersstations.com that I mentioned earlier, don't forget the hyphen if you decide to go there, it was used primarily in East Germany, Russia, and Cuba. Or Cuba, as Forrest says, because I'm probably saying it wrong. <laughs> well, That's, I was just trying to be impressive. So. Yeah, no, it's like Geraldo Rivera used to. He would just be talking, and then he would go, Nicaragua. <laughs> All right, so <laughs> Cuba. Cuba Libre. Yeah. yeah that's a, well, that, that, <laughs> that site states that all of the stations that use this machine are now inactive. Now, we might never have known about this machine, but an anonymous collector in Germany has several of them. And a gentleman from the Netherlands named Peter Stahl, S-T-A-A-L, managed to reach out to this collector and arranged to go see these machines in person. Mr. Stahl not only went to see the machines, he recorded video of them in operation and then posted those recordings on YouTube, and they are absolutely fascinating. The device looks like you would expect some kind of cross between a calculator, a scale, and a telephone from the 60s or 70s to look if it had been built by IBM. Now, we can't be sure who manufactured them, but obviously if the Stasi had them, they were very likely German technology. Well, it stands to reason that military counterparts may have had similar items, but when you watch the videos that Mr. Stahl posted, you can see how these machines are more or less idiot-proof covert message voice boxes. They appear to be exceptionally easy to program and use. So they essentially look like a gray metal box, and we have links to all this. You can see it on our episode page for this episode. 
with a handle on top for easy portability. They're maybe one foot square and six or seven inches tall. The sides are smooth, but the front has a red LED display with a keypad underneath it, and that's angled up towards the user. And it has numbers and a small collection of commands to control it. All in all, there's just 25 buttons on the face of it. It also has a small housing to the left of the keypad that a transmitter, the person sending the message, can feed a hole punch type of ticker tape through that has a pre-recorded message encoded on it. So the gist of the way this works is like this. One can imagine that the person tasked with broadcasting a message arrives with this device to a shortwave transmission station. The device itself being too valuable to leave behind unattended anywhere, and also you can increase capabilities of broadcasting from multiple stations at different times if you're traveling with it. So they arrive to set up a transmission. There's only a few parameters as to how they might do this, but ideally one would think that the messages being sent are classified at the very least and possibly even more compartmentalized than that. Ideally, you don't want the person sending the messages to even know what the messages are or be able to decode or understand them. That way, if they get captured or caught or lose the message, they can't compromise the agent in the field, nor the handler back at whatever relevant headquarters is trying to send the message. So they arrive on site, hook this device up, and then they have a few ways that they might be able to broadcast the numbers over the air. One is they may have the tape with them that has the holes punched in it, or maybe they picked it up at a dead drop somewhere. They can take the small panel off the front of the box, feed the tape in, turn the box on, and have it process the tape like a player piano, where it reads the holes in the tape, and that in turn transmits vocalizations of specific numbers out over the airways. Let's say there's no tape available, though. Maybe the message couldn't be put on a tape. Maybe it was urgent. It had to be written down or possibly memorized by the transmitting operative. In that case, they skip running the tape through the machine. They can actually just turn it on and push the number buttons right on the front of the machine, and a voice will reproduce the numbers for transmission. Now, I think some of the buttons actually allow you to control, and I'm guessing here, allow you to control the pitch and the rate of the delivery, like slowing the voice down or speeding it up or otherwise trying to make it sound strange or different from another broadcast using the same EE prom. And I'll explain what that is in a second. But where do the voices come from? Are we saying that the person reading the numbers isn't even present and never was at the number station? That's exactly what we're saying. So we know you guys out there are all different ages, but even some of you younger folks might remember a gaming system that had a cartridge, right? Older folks, sure. Atari, ColecoVision, Intellivision, Nintendo, the Game Boy. Well, those cartridges use what is called ROM, or read-only memory, to provide programming code to a system so you can play it back. ROM is non-volatile memory, which means you can't change it after it's written to. There is a more sophisticated form of memory called EEPROM, E-E-P-R-O-M, or electrically erasable, programmable, read-only memory. So the ROM part is still in there, but now we can erase and reprogram it if we want to. This technology started out in Japan. It was downstream, just downstream, barely, of the invention of flash memory by Fujio Masuoka in 1971, who was working for Toshiba at the time. In 1977, Munich and Berlin-based Siemens AG, huge company still around, German, mm-hmm. developed a newer, more efficient type of EEPROM as well. If you have a credit card with a chip, you have an EEPROM in your wallet right now. Well, the Sprock generator had removable EEPROM cards that went into the back of the device, just like your cartridge did in your Atari or your Game Boy. These cards, by the way, they're not as small as like you're thinking, no, it's like I put the flash card in my camera or whatever. No, it's not. They were big kind of metal, like you pull it out, Mm -hmm. size of what probably now would be like a 10 terabyte hard drive, (laughs) about that size. Yeah. And Mm. the cards had the voices recorded onto them. Now, the voices would only have a handful of words that were frequently used and then probably a recording of single digit numbers. 
you can just swap the voice out like you're changing a game cartridge. You can change voices, languages, whatever you want. The brilliance here is that you can sit down in a room somewhere else and record the person saying these numbers who has no idea what they will be used for later. This is because they've just put in the base vocabulary and later the handler sending a message to their assets in the field would manipulate the voice on the EEPROM using this box to get it to say whatever they want it to send in the coded message. On top of that, the person actually transmitting the message wouldn't know what the message was either. It's simply their job to run the whole punch tape through the machine or key numbers in it off something that was provided to them. They don't even know what they're sending. The only people who know what the message is are the people who wrote it up and the recipient, and only if they know how to decipher the message, which is our next and last thing to cover tonight. But first, Mr. Stahl, S-T-A-A-L again, because you want to look him up on YouTube, has graciously made the files on his YouTube channel licensable by a Creative Commons attribution license with reuse allowed. So while we can't show the images of this device in action in an audio podcast, we can share some of the audio from it, and we will have links to the playlist he created on YouTube showing them being used, which I highly recommend watching. After Mm -hmm. looking at them, you're going to instantly understand how this all works. Uh, He shows the cartridges going in and out. He shows how you can punch the numbers in. I think there's one with the ticker tape I can't remember working. There's another one that I haven't watched yet that has four of them all talking at the same time, which sounds like a lot of fun. So it's really good stuff. If you can find Peter Stahl's YouTube channel, uh, even if you don't get to our page where we obviously have a link to it. And and hearing this recording part that we're going to share right now, it's not going to sound super different from the stations we've already played, except that it's going to be crystal clear because rather than being captured over the air, this is from a video camera right in front of the machine picking the audio up from its external speaker. This particular playback is of a Spanish voice. Now, when you actually watch the video, you'll see the numbers on the LED display as they are being spoken in Spanish. And when the message is done, it displays the word end. It's very simple. Now, as I said, it appears real easy to use, which makes sense. Spies have enough on their minds. Technical simplicity reduces the room for error. Uh, Sarah, will you go ahead and play a piece of that recording of uh, Peter Stahl operating the Sprock Morse generator? So anyway, that's pretty amazing. And the long and short of it Mm -hmm. is, this is not a person sitting in a microphone. It doesn't seem like it ever was. It's a box that's basically an ancient Atari, and you swap cartridges in it. And with each cartridge, you get different voices or different languages. And on top of that, you can sort of manipulate them. Somebody else decides what the voice says, because it has a basic vocabulary written onto that card. And now you're controlling the message that goes out with it. Well, it's just eliminating the unnecessary folks in the chain of custody of secrecy is that you could have somebody, uh, here, read this message. Well, that's one other person who could be compromised. That's right. You have a mole in your uh, organization and that person's reading all the messages and they get them. Maybe that person gets captured and now they have plausible deniability. They don't know what the message is. Well, I was envious because one of the descriptions on one of the ones that Peter Stahl had written on one of those videos that said, you used to be able to get these on eBay. And I was just like, oh man, how cool would that be? They're, believe me, (laughs) they're not up there now. I think the guy in Germany has all of them probably. There's there's nothing I know, you love old tech. You don't have room for it. I know, I'm still looking for a real to real recorder. I have a friend helping me. But I was going to ask you, uh, as an editor, do you remember... I did. I was more uh, at sometimes uh, an online editor, which means it was more of the finishing video. But we would get 
with a batch of tapes, sometimes if it came from somebody else, you'd, you'd get a roll of punch tape. Yeah. And that was the computer instructions. Yes. That's a really old editing system. That's yes, a really yes. old Grass Valley. I think uh, you had to feed that in. But the, basically the holes are just very simple on-off, zero Yeah, ones. binary commands. Yeah. Yeah, commands to get the machine to do something. You could feed it in and it would... Uh, right, which is probably what's happening here. You know, it's binary representation right. of whatever number it's supposed to say. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty interesting. I, I just yeah, thought it was to... uh, it was clever because we're the point here is that we're at the transition between old tech, the old world, and the new. Where now yes. you've got a ton of really sophisticated technology out there, but as we said, that gets uh, foiled a lot, and it's also traceable. So here you yeah, have a right. blending of electromechanical, a bit of human uh, <laughs> human interaction in there, and some old tech, but it works. And as you and I learned over the news and going to the uh, spy museum exhibit, and I'll try and find and dig up some photos from that that I, I took personally. Oh uh, yeah, from the exhibit. And I know I could. I had a few. I, I yeah, mostly I, took I, pictures of Air Force One. I think, but I took a bunch, and not to bore people over their vacation photos, but I will put up <laughs> the more communication based uh, kind of thing. You can see the actual uh, secret radios that yeah. people had uh, a radio yeah. that was uh, designed as a simple AM FM radio, but inside you flipped up the, uh, the top thing and it, that was the ham radio that was underneath there that would also transmit. Yeah. And that, that exhibit's probably still traveling. If you could find out where it is today, it's really worth seeing. Cause it was, you know, it was a, it was a brief expo at the Reagan museum. Yeah. So it's at this, uh, transition and a thing to keep in mind philosophically is that a lot of what, uh, recently what Al Qaeda was able to do, remember in the days of Tora Bora, yeah. When the tech gets even more sophisticated and you have people listening to you and watching you from satellites, how you can defeat that is you don't play the game. You right. go very low tech. And so they would transmit messages with paper and pencil yeah. and just hand yeah. it to people. Sneaker net, asymmetrical warfare. Right. You're not playing their game, right? You're not using yeah. the same equipment. You're not, uh, you don't have very sophisticated stuff. And yeah. then uh, they have to get down to your level. And I remember one trick that they did which actually foiled an operation was they were tracking them over the radio, right? So it's like right. they can't hone in, but they can track you from the signal that you're you're broadcasting. So what Al-Qaeda did was give the radio to a guy and just keep clicking in and saying gibberish or whatever, but walk right. the other direction. And the yep. rest of the dudes walked in the opposite direction and they tracked the guy going the wrong way. Right, right. And that's how you defeat it. Just, yeah, it's so... <laughs> We're very clever, but sometimes you can get fooled by some very simple old-fashioned tech. Well, speaking of which, what makes this system work so well? It turns out the most effective part of it is the one-time pad. And so <laughs> I'm going to try and explain this as briefly and simply as I can uh, before we wrap up this show. We've already said you don't really need any special gear to receive a shortwave signal. You just need a shortwave radio, which are actually more common in Europe than they are in the U.S., not hard to get and not hard to even make one, as we said earlier. Mm -hmm. The only ancillary thing you need here is your one-time pad code, which even if someone found it, they wouldn't be able to make sense of it. And once you've used it, you burn it or even eat it. However, if you get busted with one, people know you're a spy, even if they can't figure out the message that's on it, unless you're actually caught like Van Harleem. In the act. Right. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm sure you have a note for this. I think I saw one before is that I, I think I've always heard of a, an easier thing to be caught with, which is more deniable. We're going to talk about that in a second, but please continue, sir. As Simon Mason points out in his book, without the one-time pad to decipher any code sent using that system is unbreakable. 
flat out unbreakable. Just, it's not, there's no percentage, doesn't matter what computer you bring, whatever. It's unbreakable. Now, if you don't want to carry a sheet or sheets of paper that have numbers written out on them, which if caught would, as I just said, give you away as a spy, like in the case we mentioned earlier, you might have agreed ahead of time to use a particular book or pages in a book for the pad, a book mm-hmm. that is available to both the sender and the receiver. Okay, well, there it is. Yes. <laughs> the idea, though, is that if you get a paperback, let's just say at the uh, the airport Walden's, and it has to be the same edition as we said earlier. So you just agree right. upon that. It probably don't make it too obvious. Like, uh, yeah, because you don't, if it's got a different word on different pages because it's a different print edition or right. it was paginated differently or it's hardback versus whatever, or what you, it's going to mess your message all up. So it's definitely got to be yeah. from the exact same print run, just like the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam right. had to be for the Summerton Man story. You still need the key, though. That's what we're talking about yes. is that you need to know, okay, so I got the same book. It's not Tom Clancy. Like I said, that's maybe too on the nose, but you pick a book that's pretty popular and easy to obtain that you know you're going to be able to get on the other side. And then you need the key, which is, okay, turn to page 72, go to the 14th word on that page or the certain number of letter, and then you need to know what the code is. The other key that was often used was actually like a template, and it would have uh, like a piece of cardboard with cutouts and you would place that over a certain page and that would show and reveal the words that you were meant to see and read in order. However, that's also pretty easy to lose. Don't want to get caught with it. Yeah. It has to work. So that's a little, yeah, more tenuous. So again, having the key in the pad, it's essential, but it's also essential to be able to destroy it, but also uh, not lose it. That gets to me trying to explain one-time pads real quick. There's a lot more information as to how these messages are created. We're not going to get into that tonight because you can quickly go from being in the weeds to the tall weeds to the deep, dark woods. So we're not going to do that because we wind up talking for a thousand hours just about the groups and codings. But I did want to do a brief overview here, if we could, so that you can understand a little bit more about how the codes work in a very simple case, how a one-time pad works. If you want to look up how each station grouped its numbers and what they meant in each case, it's all out there. It's all on the internet. It's easy to find that stuff. But we can explain some of the simplest ideas. Now, obviously, they are called number stations because they're transmitting numbers. Duh, right? All right, the numbers are the message. They are the code. And believe it or not, most of the stations send what are called coded groups. This is a pattern which will tell you things about the message. Like the first numbers will say, who is the message for? So that'll be like, what is the agent or asset by their number? There's a number associated with them. They know if they hear 58326, oh, that's me. I got to pay attention here. How many numbers will appear in the message? Well, 58623217. There's going to be 217 messages or coded numbers after this one. And then that's going to tell me the actual content of the message. And there will generally be a part that will say, what time is it going to be broadcast? When should I listen? Whether it's UTC time or whatever. It's coming on at 1,205 hours UTC or whatever. The thing is, the one-time pad part of this is so unbreakable that even knowing all that, knowing that the first number is the agent and the, how many messages and all that, if you don't have the key, that's still not going to tell you anything. All you're knowing is like, well, it's an indiv- it's an individual Somebody sent 52 things to that individual. We have no idea what they are. We'll never figure it out. So uh, here's an example of some of the information that might be transmitted. This was actually from Mr. Mason's book again. A key might be sent like 312 and then 02, which would mean you should turn to page 312 of the agreed upon book and use the second word. 
That's if you're using a book for the pad. Now, remember, if you don't know the agreed upon book, well, then you have to look at every book ever published in the history of humanity to try and figure out what that message was. Oh, wait, that's impossible. <laughs> at least. <laughs> well, that's what I was thinking about the early uh, ancient uh, Spartans uh, using the skittily or the ancient Romans yeah. and Greeks is that you could try different diameters of wooden dowels and rods yeah. until it made yeah. a message, but it's also the message is very short. It's usually just one word. And I thought like, well, it could be yeah. attack, retreat, whatever you yeah. need. Uh, this is Sparta. Yeah. <laughs> that you're going to waste your time on that. But the idea that right, was- you, it, Right yeah. when you decipher it, a foot comes out of nowhere and kicks you into a well. <laughs> well that's what I'm saying. It's very, yeah, the, the world back then was very tenuous. You wonder how anything survived, but they would write a message on papyrus and just send one dude as a runner and he would just go run with it. Same thing with it, that strip yeah. of papyrus, you wrap it around uh, the right size stick. So you do need to know, it all works in the same principle. The sender and the right. receiver have to have a commonality there, an agreed upon kind of thing. Right which decodes the whatnot. And then the message in transmission has to arrive safely. So that's why shortwave is a, it's a great idea. Now there's uh, of course, yeah. uh, you know, there's all different kinds of telephonic transmission possibilities nowadays. Yes. Yeah. Satellite, this and that. And, and so you have, uh, and of course, really advanced technology by companies like Raytheon, who are just uh, you know, right. doing all kinds right. of encrypted, encoded messages, because you still need to communicate, right? That's right. At the base of it. But yeah, so just so folks know, it's like, you don't have to worry about uh, all the specifics, just know that there's only a few principles which must be met for this all to work. Yes. All right. So let's talk a little bit more about the idea of the one-time pad. A quote, and a great concise explanation of the one-time pad or OTP from Mason's book, Secret Signals, is here before. This is referring to a standard numerical pad and not a pre-agreed upon book. And this is a great simple explanation. I like the way he wrote this. This pad consists of a number of pages of randomly generated four or five figure groups. The pages are made of a special material that can be easily destroyed by burning or perhaps even eating. As the name suggests, each piece of paper is used only once. When the station broadcasts, it usually sends a numerical identifier to single out the page of the pad to be used for that particular message. When the message has been sent, the recipient subtracts the number sent over the air from the corresponding number on the sheet, or vice versa. This is the key to the pad's security. Without the particular sheet in question, the message is unbreakable. So to explain this a little further, I'm going to extrapolate some information sent to us by a listener I'm going to call Don. And I'm calling him Don because that's his name, mm. not using mm -hmm. his last name. Now, Don understands one-time pads, and he made an attempt to explain them to us over email. The messages he sent at points may as well have been in code, even though they weren't because they were in plain English. But some of the concepts were difficult for me to grasp anyway. But after reading and rereading it, I did make sense of it all. And we're going to share the gist of them here and also a better explanation in our show notes. But for now, I want to share the most important points about one-time pads from Don. And thank you, Don, again, mm -hmm. for sending this information to us. I think this makes it something that you can actually follow. I'm going to go backwards here and start with the message Don used for his sample, his example to me. And that message was, we went to the theater with them. That's the message. And it's so funny, by the way, he's, when he sent this, he was explaining how to decipher it. And he went about 90% there. And then the last part, he's like, I'm going to leave that for you to figure <laughs> out. And so I... <laughs> A couple of hours ago, I was trying to write this out, and I was like, okay. And I was like, I don't even know what to do next. And I'm <laughs> writing on these notepads, and I got my post-it right. out. And then I figured out the rest of the message, oh, and I was so excited. Huh? It was very oh. exciting. So uh, thank you, Don, for that. But anyway, we went to the theater with them. Now, firstly, 
why the one-time pad versus just a simple substitution code? That's what a lot of people do. Oh, well, instead of A, I'm going to use the number six. And instead of B, I'm going to use seven. Well, a substitution code cannot hide the patterns that are present in written language that make it easy to identify. Simply swapping one symbol for another does not, for example, change the fact that in the case of English anyway, E is the most common letter in the English language. So you start by simply replacing the substituted symbol that appears most frequently in your coded message with an E, and then maybe you also know that the word the is an extremely common three-letter word. Well, if you did the E thing, and then you see an E at the end of a three-letter word, like it is in this message, the theater, well, that word is probably the. Now you can put the TH in, and you know what symbols those replace, and you've got THs going everywhere else, theater, wherever else. Now you can substitute every other symbol for those three letters. You've unraveled three of the 26 possible letters right out of the gate there. Is there a two-letter word that we've now discovered that starts with a T? Well, yeah, to the theater. Well, a two-letter word that starts with a T is going to be followed by a vowel, and nine times out of ten, that's going to be an O. So we know to and the. So we're already deciphering the whole thing if you're just using a simple substitution code. Now, with that information, you could take everything we just said and get to the bottom of a substitution code quickly. But Don next details how a one-time pad solves the problem of what he says is called residual pattern or the pattern present in English that you're going to need to conceal to prevent easy deciphering in every other language too. And it's certainly the Romance languages. There's patterns that you can look for. So he points out that you need to not only obscure the symbols, which are the letters, you have to obscure the pattern. He adds, and I'll quote Don here, the key is disrupt the letter frequency pattern, given that the opposite of pattern is noise in the sense of static, snow, etc. The solution will involve injecting noise. Noise in this content is equivalent to randomness. The problem is to inject randomness into the message in a way that it can be extracted and the message recovered. So this is where it gets a little too complicated to explain without pictures, but by God, I'm going to try anyway. I'm going to sum it up by saying that his example used a numeric substitution cipher, and he kept this simple. He chose an easy one, where he replaced each letter, and we went to the theater, with whatever number it was in the sequence of the alphabet, from 1 to 26, because there's 26 letters in the alphabet. So that phrase, we went to the theater, has 26 letters and six spaces. The spaces are important, too. That's part of the message one space between the seven words. Now, Don points out that to inject randomness into that substitution code that would be so easy to break, you now have to come up with a random sequence of numbers that has at least as many numbers as are present in the message, including the spaces. So we went to the theater has 26 letters plus six spaces. So that's 32 random numbers required to take the next step. It's very hard to generate random numbers. He mentioned uh, using a 32-sided die, but he didn't have one, so he said he cheated and used his computer in his sample. He wrote down the 32 random numbers in like a matrix or like a spreadsheet form. So he had at the top, he had his simple number substitutions for we went to the theater. The box for uh, the W was 23, because that's the 23rd letter of the alphabet. And then E for we was the fifth letter, so that would be a five. So then we would be 23 and then 05. The space after we was left blank because it was a space, and uh, so on for the whole rest of the phrase. Then on the second row, he put in all those 32 random numbers that his computer made for him. 
So you think about your spreadsheet at the top, you've got numbers for we went to the theater just based on what those letters are in the alphabet. Second row, 32 random numbers. His first random number was a 34. He then added that to the 23 for the W, and W now becomes 57. The second random number was 80. That word was we. The second letter, E, was the fifth letter of the alphabet. That was a five. So now he added the 80 and the five. So that became 85. Don't worry, I'm not going any further. Oh, thank goodness. <laughs> well, no, the yeah. idea is that you're injecting randomness into exactly. the coding. So that's what people should understand. You're here. putting yes. it into the code, and now we has changed from 2305 to 5785. Mm -hmm. And then you add the remaining 30 numbers to all the rest of the phrase, including the spaces, which since they're blank, you, there's no addition to do there. And then you have an entirely new, unbreakable numeric code for the entire phrase. We went to the theater together. Mm -hmm. This is better explained in the show notes, but I hope you could sort of follow that. So here's how the one-time pad of that works. If both the sender and the receiver don't have the first cipher, which in this case was just the simple thing where it was whatever letter in the alphabet it was, that was the first cipher. And then also the random numbers, those 32 random numbers we chose, you can't break it. You have to have both of those things. Don points this out. The substitution cipher and the random number sequence must be shared in advance. Both can only be used once because the cipher and sequence can only be used once. The senders and receivers of the message must have enough ciphers and sequences to last the duration of the mission. Each is on a page on the pad that is destroyed after use. That would be why it's called a one-time pad. So Don's final summary of this was as followed. He, uh, he actually said this was the TLDR on it, but I, I, I did read it anyway, but here we go. The code described in the example is uncrackable as long as... The key is carefully chosen to be random. The key is never stolen by the bad guys, trademark. Mm. To mitigate the effects of a stolen key, each key is used once and not repeated. Since this approach does not rely on computers, it has been feasible since its invention in the early 20th century. Since this is a provably uncrackable code, computers, no matter how powerful, are not helpful. All of this made them very useful for Cold War era number stations. Even today, they are useful. So, assume number stations are transmitting coded messages. Assume that the transmitted sequences are, as best we can tell, random. This makes the one-time pad approach the most likely candidate for the cryptography used by number stations during the Cold War. If the keys can be securely distributed, then the one-time pad approach remains viable. Understanding the details is just the icing on the cake. Onward, signed Don. Uh, Don, I can't thank you enough for explaining this to us. And for what it's worth, folks, we are working on a one-time pad exercise for all of you listeners out there in the coming weeks to play with if you want to try your hand at espionage. Mm. Uh, more on that later. Mm. So, uh, Drink your first, oval, do you have any Yeah. Anyway, that's people's know. <laughs> you have any questions? Could you follow that for us? Uh, yeah, but okay. then again, you know, I did read up uh, almost as much as you on in these sections here yes. on these topics. So I, yeah. I kind of followed what was yeah. going on, but... Here are some anecdotes just quickly to highlight that. Yeah. Now, the Enigma machine was an electromechanical machine, a device developed by the Germans. And what I didn't realize is that I think the Polish intelligence services in the late 30s, prior, maybe just prior to the war, were instrumental in cracking that and had cracked some of it. Now, right. how it worked where there were dials inside, electromechanically yes. turned dials. One operator would punch a keypad, right? So there's 26 keys for the alphabet. Right. And it would light up a light. And then another operator would make a note of what light lights up. Right. Depending on how that machine was tuned, the key right. to that machine 
when that message yeah, was encoded. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then they would mark which which light lit up. And then that's basically your answer. Then the other person on the other end of the machine or out of the other machine is that they now have this code, which is kind of one time. That's what we were saying is that at midnight, they would change how those electromechanically operated gears or wheels right. would pick a corresponding number or letter, right? right? So because it would change every night, that's why it was so hard to crack. Now, one clue that was used to crack this is that I believe this only came to light maybe a year or two ago. There was a German officer yes. who wrote a lot of these messages or some of the messages were coded but intercepted, but they couldn't crack them until they figured out that he would always sign off his messages in kind of the same way as human habit. Right. It's, it's like, uh, off you to Zane, you know, whatever, yeah, yeah. What, whatever the phrase was, he kind of, or just said like, toodaloos. Yeah, there was a greeting or, a, or sign off. Yeah, that he, they, and right. once they got hold of that, because that's the thing, each day they had to start over trying to break it. They never had right. more than a day to work on it. Right. And at midnight hit, they're back to square one. So once they right. got a hold of that word, or that phrase, they were yeah. able to use that to figure out the rest of the code. Exactly. And this is one of the main tenets of Don's explanation here is that it, there has to be no patterns to it. Because once yeah. you have a pattern, like the English language, or in this case, human behavior, where people have catchphrases, yeah. see you later, skater, that yeah. alone, if you kept using it, that is identifiable as some kind of pattern. So that led to some of them cracking it. Now, on the other hand, with no pattern discernible to any known language, that's why the Voynich manuscript has been so hard to crack. Right. Nobody can really figure out a pattern with it. Well, I, although I heard it was mystery solved, but I haven't, I haven't well, drilled down on that. Yet. No, I know. No, that happened at the time we did the. Uh, <laughs> remember, we did the yeah. story, and somebody came out and said mystery uh, solved, and then a a, a a scholar, I think she said, uh, uh, you know, who is a ancient texts authority scholar yeah. herself was like hold on a second let's yeah <laughs> people get very excited when they think they've cracked it now i will yeah. say what i think has been cracked is it message 340 because of the number of characters in the zodiac killers uh yes. second cipher because yeah that's it, a, dan orin chuck or i can't remember his yeah name, that's right right uh, professor abbott gave us his contact information actually yeah dave aronchek and dave aronchek uh, yes, yes yeah there was another gentleman in uh, i think the netherlands and uh, with a third person and they used computers and adapting code and uh you know running it through six hundred thousand times yeah and refining yeah. the code and finally after 30 years they have figured it out. Now, not to spoil anything for folks, but basically the reason it wasn't crackable earlier with any known method is that uh, the Zodiac thought he was smarter than he was, which right. is often the case with people with uh, a bit of narcissistic uh, psychopathy. He tried to outdo himself because he's got to be more and more clever, right? He's, right? he's a criminal genius nobody can catch. Yeah, and yeah. at this point is that he screwed up too much. Yeah. Now, we've known that some people who write ciphers will purposely put in errors yeah. as a little wink and a nod and an Easter egg to very smart people trying to figure it out and right. to throw you off. But if you're clever, you get that. But right. what I remember reading is that that is up front and it's obvious to yeah. people who are in the club of writing and solving codes is that you get that like, ah, very clever. It's a little tete-a-tete, -tete, right? Yes. This guy, though, uh, he tried to make it too complicated and screwed up. Right. And by screwing up, that actually made it unreadable. And you got to think like, well, mission accomplished. Well, no, he's... A tremendous uh, psychotic narcissist. He wants people to read that message. 
Right. He did not want it to go 30 years and nobody knows <laughs> what he was going to say because it's so important what he had to say, right? Yeah, That's yeah, what he's thinking. Exactly. It's like, well, sorry, buddy. Nobody knows. Nobody cares. You're probably dead now. Right. Good riddance. So the idea, though, is that the message should be readable. That's why you don't get nuts and you don't start putting in stuff that doesn't make sense into your system. It has to be stable, consistent every time. Yeah. And so uh, th those are the two cases, though. It's, uh, yeah, with the Zodiac, which was fascinating in that uh, because you can you can start running numbers diagonally and, and uh, you know, instead of just line by line, mm -hmm. uh, going left to right as we read in English, those are pretty common patterns. You can get real crazy with it and start doing the patterns in a cross section yeah. up and down. Well, that's and how the Bible code. Yeah, it's uh, there's something to that discovered. as well. Uh, so that's all it's all pretty interesting. But yeah, in the case here, though, is that it's pretty simple in that what we're talking about tonight's show, as you get to your conclusions, is that. You can hear this. Anybody can hear these. In fact, you just heard some that were replayed for you. So the method of transmission is very simple, but the method of decoding is uncrackable for the most part. That's right. Unless you're the FBI, you're broken, and you stole the, you stole the program that the Cubans were using to decode it into the laptop. And then, right. Uh, right. yeah, and then you can crack it. But anyway, I will just say before you get into your conclusions that uh, my only conclusion really is that... Uh, I just wonder what all those orders were. What really yeah. happened? What transpired? What were the actions, the covert actions, uh, possibly killings or yeah. violence? And or... we may never know. Or, the, you know, we know the results of them, but we don't know how they got to the results. You know, what steps right. were taken along the way? The greatest spy missions, you never find out what happened. Well, these are the conclusions as I see them. Mm-hmm. First of all, this is mystery solved again. Uh, we just <laughs> well, did a mystery solved. Yeah, I think uh, so. Uh, for the most part. No, but, but to a certain extent it is. I mean, and is there is there a connection to the Summerton Man? Well, not unless he turns out to be a spy, which based on research happening across the internet yeah. right now, and some great yeah. stuff, by the way, is seeming a little less and less likely. But it's, it's great know. to be able to cover okay. one-time pads and number stations right after we covered the true name of the Summerton Man. So that's what I'm saying is that we don't know yet. Don't get ahead of yourself. We don't yourself. know. Sorry. We don't know. Don't get ahead yeah, of yourself. They, man, and they're running down eating. everything over at, uh, I was over at Nick Pelling's website the other day and they were running down everything on this guy, you know, like, you know, the day he wore mismatched socks to school mm -hmm. and all that stuff. They're, they're figuring it out about Carl Webb. So we'll, we'll see what, what comes out there. We shall see. But, uh, number stations, when you hear them, they're in a lot of ways, inherently creepy sounding, robotic, indecipherable, never ending analog messages. What is it about that combination that is so psychologically jarring? Why does it play to our fears? Uh, sure, some people are, yeah, meh, never freaked me out. I don't care. And if you're one of those people, we believe you. you don't have to email us to tell us that. <laughs> but other folks <laughs> will say, some of these sounds made me uncomfortable in a way. Well, it definitely screws with your need for cognitive closure, a term we first talked about, I think, with the Amelia Earhart series, which really is about having such a hard time living with a mystery that a combination of research, confirmation bias, and the need for cognitive closure can cause some investigators to mark a mystery solved even though they've taken some pretty significant leaps along the way because they simply couldn't live with the question any longer. And in the face of that, they rationalized the, the missing pieces of the mystery must add up to what they personally have decided is the solution, whether it can be categorically proven or not. This can be such a strong psychological component for some investigators that even after being presented with proof of an actual solution with no holes in it, they refuse to accept it. So where do number stations come into all this? Well, with regard to what they are, mystery solved. 
It's far less romantic than we probably wanted it to be, but because of their using of one-time pads, the reality is, for the overwhelming majority of all the messages that have been recorded from number stations over the years, those are never going to be solved if the pads are truly destroyed as they should have been. Now, if the pads were saved by the organizations that put them in some dark basement where they're still sitting along with the text of the original messages, maybe you'll get that. But otherwise, those messages are lost forever. And unless you've got a black belt like in remote viewing, like our friend Lori, there is absolutely no way you're ever going to know what a particular message said. That cognitive closure is never coming. So Forrest, when it comes to the actual content of these well-documented messages over the years, I think we're going to have to go back to one of my favorite expressions of yours from our show. Live with the question. that's going to wrap up our show on number stations we'll be back in two weeks with a new show but if you can't wait join our patreon to hear us next week on the much more candid astonishing junk drawer which is frequently live on video please remember to support our sponsors they help keep the show free and the lights on in blanket fortiana hi scott billbrook boris burgess i'm cj shut galaxy-wide in perpetuity. Own this soundbite. I understand this is with no implied promise. Or at least until the AIs take over and enslave the human race. Astonishing Legends is edited by Sarah Voorhees Wendell at VW Sound and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also head of research and the social media manager. Special thanks to our announcer, John Bolin. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane at foundermusic.com. And our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Our logo was created by Tommy Beaver Design, and our animated graphics for social media and YouTube are done by Joshua Sloan at DeadStreetProductions.com. Every episode going back to September of 2020 has a transcription available on its corresponding webpage at our website. Earlier transcriptions can be made available upon request to AstonishingContact at gmail.com. Astonishing Legends would not be possible without you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Instagram, Twitter, Discord, Facebook, and YouTube. You can also visit us at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content, including the Patreon-exclusive show, Astonishing Junk Drawer, which is available every week the main show is not. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. Good night.